Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other voice you will hear, as always, is Matt Feuerstein. Matt, this is a rare Friday night recording for us, and uh, we change things up a little bit, and everything goes to hell. Um, I lose my paid writing gig because uh, the great people at FanFight have announced that they're uh, sadly closing up the wrestling ring wing of the site in a month. Um, Vince McMahon retires. Apparently, uh, my microphone's having a little bit of problems, although you are confident that it will all be worked out in level later. Matt, we can never record on a Friday again. This is um, the world's on fire. Sure, truly, this is the worst week in um, the history of Through the Years. Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear about Fan Fight and uh, and your writing gig, but yeah, it was a great site, and your columns were great. And uh, I know that you will um, you'll land some other place, but uh, you know, I've definitely um, mourned that the loss of that site, and uh, that's all I have to say about everything you uh-huh. just said. Yeah, yeah, obviously, Lord knows there's enough talk about Vince McMahon. Including, I don't know. I don't even know who that is. Yeah. So you know what? We are going to be what through the years is great at being, which is an escape from all of that. So, as always, we have uh, three feeds. You found one of them. So either the pro wrestling only feed, the feed that's just us, T H R O H, on any podcast app for spelling through, or YouTube, where we get our nicest comments. Are always on YouTube. Just we always get like. It seems like every episode now we get one unbelievably nice comment that just is humbling. And, uh, yeah, so those are the three ways to listen. And let's get right to the show. Um, the show we are covering today is Ring of Honor's fourth anniversary show. It took place February 25th, 2006 in Edison, New Jersey at the Inman Sports Club in front of a reported crowd of 850 fans. The Observer would mention about this, the 850 fans is very close to the same crowd they drew for Kenta and Marafuji the last time in the building. So that's a pretty big win in the sense that you're drawing basically the same crowd with a very, I mean, it's a good card, but it's not, it's not, we're flying in big outside stars to make their debuts big. So, But it felt like just ROH was getting hot at this point. Like, uh, I think the CZW thing had a lot to do with it, but yeah, they, they were going to have a run of pretty good crowds. Um over the next few shows. And I think like, this is just the beginning, maybe not even the beginning, but this is during a, a pretty hot period for them. Yeah. And that, that's a great point that I was thinking about making at the end of the show, but it's a good time to talk about when I was watching this show and maybe this is tipping my hat, but um, I really got this feeling like when you watch a wrestling product weekend and week out, or I guess for us, for us, it's show in show out every three weeks in, every two weeks out. Um, like, you know, there are times when a wrestling company's kind of on its way down or when it's kind of maintaining a level. And there's nothing more fun than when a, when you're watching a wrestling company and you get the feeling that it's like heating up. Espe- just- especially when it's heating up based on things that you like. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes things heat up in ways that are not really suited to your own personal tastes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and I and I feel like watching the show. I got that feeling. I've gotten a couple times during through the years where it's like, it's just on this show. I feel like, oh, it's heating up. You know, like I could feel more of an energy from the crowd. Obviously, with this, you know, this attendance to see like 
like you were just mentioning that they that's filtering through to the fans and just so many things are starting off or really progressing well where there's been a lot of through the years. I think we've only had a couple times where things have kind of dipped in momentum a little bit, like maybe late 2003, early 2004, maybe um, the few shows between when punk left and when, before Danielson became champ, but like, this, you know, this is one of those times where it feels like watching this show, I got this real nice feeling of, oh, we're getting into in like a really good period now. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, I expect that to be borne out by the shows that we're going to watch. I mean, this is the beginning of the Milestone series. Yeah. And that's, that, that's literally my next show. You are like one step ahead of me today because um, on the Milestone series, we should talk about that. So for people that don't know, this is a thing you won't really know if you don't own the physical DVDs. Although I guess there's a little graphic on the screen yeah yeah they, they have they they make note of it on the on the dvd itself basically the milestone series was ring of honor saying like we have a, this big run of six or seven um six historically significant shows to us so we're going to label them as the milestone series and the big selling point was if you bought the dvds they had on the spine, like if you put all those dvds together in order on your shelf they would spell out the ring of honor logo and milestone series and look really nice. So it was a nice little collector's bonus if you bought every show in the milestone series. And uh, it, w- it must have been a big success for them because, well, one, these shows were really finally remembered. But two, they tried to repeat it the next year with that um, that fifth year festival where they did the same kind of branding and the the logos on the spines of the DVDs would spell out something. And I assume it didn't work out quite as well that time because I they never did it again. I don't think, at least in my memory. But yeah, I, I I'm a fan of the concept though. I think it worked definitely worked out for the first one. You know, we'll see if it works out for the second one. But you know, I I just I like the idea. Like this is a special run of shows, and they try to do the best they can to make each one special. And they do a little to be continued. We'll see at the end of each of the DVDs to try to create a thread from one show to the next, which is not something they typically do on ROH DVDs. So I thought it was a cute concept and I think it, I think it worked out. The only thing I would, I want to ask you, cause there's must be something I'm forgetting cause my memory is really bad, but I guess it's just in there because it's in the streak and otherwise it would break up the streak of shows in the milestone series. But I can think of a, of a reason for a, every show in this series is a milestone except for one. So this show starts it off fourth anniversary show. Obviously that's a milestone. Next show is arena warfare. That's, um, Ring of Honor's first show ever in ECW Arena. So you can say, okay, that's a milestone. Then we skip one show, which I'll get to in a second, and we get uh, Ring of Honor's first ever triple shot, which ended up being some of the biggest shows they ever run. Those are milestones. And then you get the 100th show, which ends the milestone series. But Best in the World, which is just the Ring of Honor show they run in New York, like, is there something I'm forgetting that was like sp- special about that show, or does that just happen to be in the middle and it's like you know we're not going to break up the series for one show yeah i mean i think that it's um i think that it's like the, the, the what you said like it's it's in the middle but you know they, they could stretch it to make it make sense yeah. you know that it's it's a big show in new york and kenta and marafuji are wrestling against brian danielson and samoa joe like they're like literally the best in the world against the best in the world so I, th- I think that's basically it. But you're right. It's not as yeah. obvious a milestone as um, as the uh, as the as the rest of the uh, the events. Maybe as we get closer, we'll we'll get to read some of what Gabe wrote and 
maybe he has a better explanation of what makes that a milestone that we're forgetting. But I think that's pretty much it. It's just, it fits in with the rest of it. And you can stretch the meaning of the term milestone to fit. Yeah. Matt, every day of my life is a milestone. <laughs> but, um, you and me both, it. brother. <laughs> so, uh, the, the torch reminded me of this reading the news that happened between the last show and this one. Not much really happened to cover, but I thought that I, I, this was a blast from the past. Do you remember this, Matt? The torch writes, Ring of Honor ran an angle last week where Chris Hero shut down the Ring of Honor message board and directed people to visit CZW's message board. Do you remember that classic little piece of business where they, they temporarily, very briefly shut down the Ring of Honor message board? Chris Hero was like, ha ha! I've shut it so you have to go to CZW fans. No, no, until you just said that like a second ago, I had totally forgotten that. But now I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. It's funny though because CZW fans was like – like it was a CZW website, but it was – it felt like more of like a catch-all like indie fans website. Yeah. And, and I feel like at least the times I visited CZW fans, which might have been a bit later, like there was a lot more open criticism of CZW there than like – you would expect from a promotion, a promotional a affiliated message board. But. It, it felt more independent than the ROH yeah. message board did for sure. Like it didn't feel like it was just a bunch of people. Not that like the ROH message board didn't have any criticism of ROH, but, and, and not that it felt like it was like super hyper moderated, but it felt like the people in the ROH message board were like on team ROH, whereas the CCW message board felt like it was like fans of indie wrestling just being themselves. Yeah, we are so dated, though, because can you imagine, like, if someone, like, a younger fan listens to the show a few years from now, will they even know what a message board is? Like, those are really dying out, sadly. Like, the idea where, I think, you know, we've talked about in the past how important the Ring of Honor message board was to Ring of Honor at times. Like, the idea of a major angle being a heel being like, ha you'll have to go to a different message board. Like, fans these days would be like, why don't you just go on Twitter? But Yeah, I mean, would, would, would like... Would Discord be the modern version of a message board, kind of? Probably. It's not quite the same, but yeah. I think that's the best analog. Definitely better than Twitter or Facebook or, like, a messaging app. I think that's definitely the closest, even though it's not quite – like, it's harder to revisit old conversations on Discord. You know, it's still much more like a chat, but it's, it's the closest we have, you know, other than – the few message boards that are still kind of yeah. I was going to ask. Like, I was going to ask. You were like the king of the Figure Four Wrestling Observer message board. Is that thing? Does that still exist? Yes, it does. I don't post there, but uh, you know, it, it still exists. Is it active? Is it active? Like, do people yes, post yes, on it? Yes, it is. I mean, okay. it, it's it's probably seen better days, but it's still active. And you know, I think there's still like even a Death Valley Driver message board. I don't know how active that is, but again, that was another place that was like kind of the lifeblood in some ways of indie wrestling during yeah. this era, you know, like some, yeah. the major wrestlers that Tony Khan posted there. Pro wrestling only still around. Yeah. Exactly. Um, ROH forum still around. Um, the is wrestling classic still around. I'm, I mean, at least the archives are, cause I think like a year ago, I had to look up some stuff there. I, again, I have no idea how active it is. But, remember, uh, remember the other arena. <laughs> I do. They used to have like a crazy, like their own kind of like wrestling simulation game. Like that was an yeah. extensive site. Well, that but that was that was like that was a crazy message board because it had um, John Williams, who was just like one of the early like anti Meltzer people, and he used to criticize because they were like friends that had a falling out. Oh man, <laughs> this is bringing me back. Oh god, this is. 
Okay, too much nostalgia. This is this is incredible. John Williams, man, taking me back. But anyway, we're kind of dating ourselves here. Um, oh, kind of. <laughs> Literally, the whole point of the podcast is that we're dating ourselves, which is good because no one else will date us. So, yeah, we're, yeah, this whole show really is just living in the safe, warm blanket of nostalgia. But continuing that on, um, another note from the Prosley Torch about this show, and that unfortunately we have reached a point where. The Wayback Machine just has not archived anything for like a good month and a half. And so I can't find any old lineups or a lot of the news that isn't in newsletters, which I can dig up. And so I don't know what his original match was, but the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, According to Ring of Honor officials, Chris Saban was forced to pull off the fourth anniversary show on February 25th due to a strained ankle and a transportation issue. So um, it would be funny if those were tied together, like he was planning on getting there on bicycle or something. But um, <laughs> but anyway, I don't know what his match would have been. I, I, it's interesting. I was trying, uh, you know, just in my mind, I was trying to think. Well, where would he have fit on this card if, um, you know, he had worked here? Because this seems like a pretty complete card, at least in the top half. That was all kind of set in stone. But clearly, he had a, a match here, but had to pull off and. Uh, one last live note before we get to the show. Uh, Greg Chornomaz, uh, apologies if I mangled your name there, sir, if you're listening. He uh, gave a live report to the Pro Wrestling Torch at the time, and he will have, I think, a couple notes from him. And he noted this did not make the DVD, but the show opened with a 10-bell salute to Johnny Grunt, who had just passed away at this time. And so kind of, again, takes you back to the time and the place we were, and obviously uh, – Johnny Grunge had a big influence on independent wrestling in the sense of one of the big indie wrestling tournaments ever is the TPI. The uh, oh wait, that's um, did I just mix up Johnny Grunge and Rocco Rock? I mean, yes. Um, oh. Also, the TPI. Also, the TPI has been around a lot. Was around a lot yeah, longer yeah, than this. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mixed them up. But I, it's still worth talking that one of the biggest wrestling tournaments of the era was the TPI. That was a big yeah. deal tournament, and uh, it was. Um, in honor of the tag team partner of Johnny Grunge. <laughs> that, that's a nice attempt at a save for me, Matt. But <laughs> yes. No, I, I screwed up here. But no, no. obviously, um, Ted Petty had a much different, uh, larger, I think, influence on independent wrestling when he was the Cheetah Kid and stuff like that. And by doing this, I'm now negging uh, Johnny Grunge. So this is becoming a Lance Storm-level tribute to uh, Johnny Grunge. But- and now you're negging Lance Storm. You know what? Let's just move on to positive. <laughs> Let's move on to the dark matches that we did not get to see because they do not make DVD. But once kind of a historically uh, significant in a little bit of a way, uh, the first match would be Handsome Johnny defeating Pele Primo. Matt, do you know who Handsome Johnny turned out to be in the future? Now I need to know because I do not. That he would end up becoming Hanson and who would later become Ivar. Oh, so, all right. Uh, he, he is he is pretty handsome. <laughs> so he would become a Ring of Honor regular years after this. So it's kind of crazy. It, it kind of shocked me to see him show up here this early because he doesn't become a real fixture in Ring of Honor for a very, quite a long time yet. But uh, then we have uh, Derek Dempsey and Rhett Titus defeating Jason King and Smash Bradley. And at this point in the show, Matt, an angle happened 
for the CZW feud. That's how hot the CZW feud was, is they were shooting angles that did not even make the DVD. Uh, Dave wrote in The Observer, the show featured more of the Ring of Honor versus CZW feud. It started uniquely as Chad Shaft, a well-known CZW front row fan who has been involved in angles with the promotion before, was at the Ring of Honor show heckling a student's match with Derek Dempsey and Rick Titus, he says. It's Rhett Titus, Dave, versus Smash Bradley and Jason King. This led to the wrestlers going out of the ring into the stands to jump Shaft. Shaft was thrown out of the building by the students, security, and Gabe Sapolsky. Shut your mouth. (laughs) I'm just talking about Shaft, man. Yes, you. (laughs) But, yeah, this did not make DVD, but, you know, it's kind of crazy that they were even, like, just like Gabe's coming out for a pre-show angle to help throw a fan out. Like, you know, this, they were trying to do different things to make this feel more real. Yeah. It it sets the mood, I suppose. And then the final dark match that we did not get to see BJ Whitmer pulled double duty on the show. Maybe because they knew he was going to do work a pretty short match on the main card. BJ Whitmer defeated Shane Hagedorn and, Shane, if you're listening, he just welcomed another child into the world. Uh, Congratulations. Congratulations, Shane. Yes. And uh, you have twice as many ki- Well, you have way more kids than Matt and I because we have zero combined. So uh, I don't know how you do a weekly podcast with one child, let alone now two. And now you're negging us. Great. Matt, I, you can just call me negative one. Um, I, uh, <laughs> but anyway... Um, we open with Jim Cornette in a room full of VHS tapes and DVDs. I assume this is like his home office or something, because I think this is back in, you know, his home in Kentucky. Uh, Cornette talks about this being the fourth anniversary of Ring of Honor. He apologizes for not being there in person, as he still has some business in Louisville that he had to attend to. Cornette says he'll be getting live reports on the show via phone, and he'll make some rulings later on in the night. Kind of weird that he was like, I'll make some rulings later in the night. Like, he's anticipating that things are going to go wrong. Yeah. Very, very pessimistic, Jim. Yeah, it's also, it's funny at this point, like, I apologize for not being there, even though I'm almost never there. <laughs> yeah, and especially, like, I was just, I'm reading ahead on the research for these shows. And, like, it feels like Cornette got cursed because he wasn't that old at this point. But we're getting close to the time where, like... Cornette suffers a, like a legitimate knee injury and has to get surgery like within a few shows. Like it seems and between this and him having the hip injury that caused him to miss shows and losing a tooth, like basically the moment Jim signed with ring of honor, horrible things started happening to him in like a final destination type, like curse on him. But yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of true. Like it does this, this run was, was kind of cursed for Jim Cornette. <laughs> But uh, what wasn't cursed, Matt, was our opener on the show proper, a three-way tag team match. The Briscoes of Jay and Mark Briscoe defeated Jason Blade and Kid Mikazi and also Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluke in six minutes, 46 seconds, when Mark Briscoe pinned Blade after he and Jay hit a simultaneous top rope leg drop and cutthroat driver. And uh, so before this match starts, what sets it up was this was supposed to just be Blade and Mikazi versus Renaro and Mamaluke. But before the match could even start, give me back my bullets plays over the PA. The Briscoes return bulked up. Jay's now in shorts rather than a singlet. Um, Jay grabs the mic and after a huge welcome back chant, says it feels good to be back. And they're here to prove that they're the best tag team in the world. He proposes it starts right here, right now. And how about they make it a three-way dance, which they do. This is one of this is one of those deals where like 
I guess because there's no commissioner, like the wrestlers just say this is going to be what happens and they just do it, which it'd be funny if real sports worked that way. When Cornette's away, the mice will play, Matt. Um, this was, you know, I, I fondly remember the return of the Briscoes. And I remember, like, did you get the same vibe as I did, like, at the time? I remember seeing, like, the Briscoes come back and being like, it's, it's a weird thing you don't get to see often in wrestling where it was almost like it's a rare thing where it almost has a similar vibe as, like, when someone you know goes off to college and comes back where it's like, wow, I these guys left as boys and now they're men. Like, they're definitely bigger, bulkier, more grown-up looking. And it, and it was kind of, and they did wrestle a little bit more aggressive, I would say, starting now. It, it definitely is a kind of an interesting thing to see, have that kind of gap. And then they kind of literally just physically mature when they're when they're back. Yeah, because they were so young. So of course yeah. they're they're grow, you know they're growing up and they're yeah they're much bigger guys and yeah they wrestled a much more powerful style. And if you look, they only wrestled at least like on record uh, a few times between when they left ROH in the summer of '04 and and here in the winter of '06. They, you know, you only have like a handful of matches with them. So it's not like they like did extensive, like, you know, like they did a big tour of Europe or, or Japan, which some guys do when they come back and they're so much better. But they just did a little bit. And I guess otherwise they must have just done training at home, you know, in their, uh, at, uh, in Delaware. But, um, they came back and they were, you know, they were already great, but they just seemed that much more great. Their presence was better. You know, already, you know, they're not like they were good on the mic yet, but they were already much better on the mic, I would say. Like, just in terms of, like, I mean, really just Jay had the mic, and he all he said was it's good yeah. to be back and stuff. But he still had a lot more confidence than he had in the promos that they would cut uh, back in the original ROH run. You know, I guess just being older gave them more confidence in general. But, yeah, this match was – it might have been actually slightly longer than it needed to be in the sense that the Briscoes came out. They did some big moves, and they really impressed – and then they had a segment where um, Blade and Mikazi worked with Renaro and Mama Luke a little bit, and nobody cared about that. And it was just kind of like, you know, I mean, not like it was so bad, but like it was just people weren't interested. And then the Briscoes came back in and did a bunch of big moves again, and everyone got excited again. And all the stuff that the Briscoes did were was great and exciting and, you know, kind of um, explosive and you know, they did some of their classic big moves. Mark did the shooting star press to the outside. They did double boots in the corner. They also did a, like a spike J driller. Oh no, that one actually came later. It was like, it was a combination of a cutthroat driver leg drop, which was, I think, new. And they won the match with that. And everything with the Briscoes was good. I feel like you could have cut out almost everything that didn't involve them and it would have been fine. But in the end, this was still a memorable return. And live, it was amazing. Like it was just, cause I was here again, um, for the show. And, just, I mean, everyone was waiting for the Briscoes' return, and they didn't announce what the Briscoes were going to do. And so it was, you know, it was great that they got it out of the way early. I think it was a really good way to prime the crowd and get them excited for the night. And it, yeah, it was a great moment. Yeah, and of course, the Briscoes would up being kind of like this through line throughout the show because we would see them multiple times. Two, uh, two more times throughout the night and the middle of the show and at the end. Yeah, they made sure that on the Briscoes' return, they were going to make clear, like, these these they're going to be major players immediately. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I, I'm glad you said what you did about the match because um, I almost thought I was a little bit crazy because it's not often you say, oh, this six minute match felt too long. Like I really enjoyed this, but just like you said, 
this match, it, it's like a Briscoe sandwich where, although I guess the Briscoes aren't the filling, they're the bread, but it's, so I guess it's more like a Kid Mikazi, Jason Blade, and uh, Renaro and Mamluk sandwich. But... It's one of those sandwiches where the bun is the best part. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've had a few of those. But um, yeah, the Briscoes just have this unbelievably hot start where they're just hitting big moves and killing everybody. And at the end, obviously, they're hitting big moves and winning the match. And then the middle of the match is, it does feel like it's one of those independent wrestling things where it's like, you're not paying these guys money. No one has guaranteed contracts. So the best you can give is like everyone's going to get a little bit of time to shine. So basically the middle of this match, which really feels like it should just be a great Briscoe squash, which it kind of is on the edges. It's like, OK, we're going to let you guys have like a two minute mini match in the middle of this. And like you said, the crowd, you know, they just want to see the Briscoes kick ass like they saw to start with. And it's not like you said, it's, it's not bad. In the middle It's just. It feels ill, kind of ham-handedly kind of wedged in there just to get those guys a shot to do some stuff rather than just sell for the Briscoes. Um, but still, I thought a really great return. The fans ate it up. Just seeing the Briscoes the way they were at this point was great. They looked like a million bucks. But a few notes around this match. First thing I want to mention, Matt, is on our last show, I read a news note about how Kerry Sokin had apparently invested in new lighting and sound equipment. I asked you on the show, Matt, does it look like to you that there's new lighting and sound equipment? And you and I both agreed, not really. And then before I'd even started watching the show, when you started watching it, you sent me a message and saying, uh, and actually on this show, it looks like there's new lighting. And I tuned in, I was like, God damn it, Matt's right. Like, so we just jumped the gun on that one because it definitely does look like the lighting. And, and the, and the camera, and the cameras, like, yeah, it, it looks, it looks crisper. Yeah, so definitely the investment seems to come in at the start at another part of the milestone series if they right. degraded the equipment. Um, another thing, Matt, did you notice that on a recent show we talked about Sal Renaro slipped on the uh, the little mini ramp coming into the ring, making his entrance? Yep. You notice he almost did it again on this entrance? And I, I did not. He, oh no, I don't know if he was actually joking to a fan about it or if he really slipped, but like. He almost falls on his ass again. I'm going to go back and watch that. I did I did not catch that. A um, couple other quick notes. The tag rope comes off in Mark Briscoe's hand. Matt, we are famous on the show for doing counts of things, particularly the uh, man-on-woman violence streak, which has long since ended, thankfully. But if I had known this was going to become a trend a few shows ago, I would have started, like, counting – how many times the newly installed Ring of Honor tag ropes come off in a wrestler's hand? Because I feel like we are at least three already. Well, number- we can start counting now. <laughs> well, again, I think we are at least at three. And then last note from the match itself. At one point, Cell does a 21-count vertical suplex on uh, Kid Mikazi. And this will start a trend on this night where there is at least four or five delayed vertical suplex spots on this show to the point where when it happens like near the end of the night, Dave Prezak even calls it out like this is the night of the delayed vertical suplex. So it all starts here in the opener. But I wonder I wonder if it like is a total coincidence and no one watched each other's matches or if by the end it was like, all right, we're just going to do this because everyone else did and it's funny. Like I, I do wonder that if like in the main event they knew that a lot of people had done it. It's funny because – um. CM Punk and Samoa Joe in their Ring of Honor shoot interview when they were still when Punk was still with the company, one of the things they kind of talked about that they took pride in was kind of making sure wrestlers did not repeat spots on a given show. But this is one of those shows where you really, you know, occasionally you can really notice the impact of a promotion not having like a proper road agent who is 
kind of making sure everything like doesn't repeat itself where, yeah, the same spot happens over and over again, but it's not a big deal. And then a note apart from the match, Matt, again, I don't know if you remember this. I did not remember this and I don't know if there's any more backstory to this, but this is from the pro wrestling torch. They write, Jay and Mark Briscoe have agreed to terms to return to Ring of Honor and will return on February 25th in Edison, New Jersey. The Briscoe brothers have been wrestling occasionally for a company backed by former Ring of Honor promoter Rob Feinstein. The rumored reason for their lengthy absence from Ring of Honor was because of a disagreement between their father and Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky. I don't remember anything about that, but uh, that'd be interesting, like an early Papa Briscoe involvement in Ring of Honor. If you, I can only imagine if Papa Briscoe, what a Papa Briscoe Gabe Sofalski argument would have been like. I wonder if that's the only mention of that particular theory in any major wrestling newsletter ever, because I don't remember hearing about it at yeah. any other point. And so it's, that's interesting. I mean, I believe that the rumors are around because, you know, rumors are rumors, but I know it's weird that I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's weird because when the Briscoes left, it was like it's seemingly just because Mark got injured on a, I think a motorcycle accident and Jay said, you know, like, I don't want to wrestle without Mark. So I'm not going to wrestle until that's done. And then there was the the rumor I always heard was that they just weren't sure if they wanted to keep doing this or go to college and play football or other stuff like that. Right. Yeah. That was the other big rumor was the college thing that came up too. But then I guess going to the story, there was that period where you just meant you mentioned at the start of the match, like, the Briscoes did wrestle a few times for other companies between when they left Ring of Honor and when they came back. So I do wonder, maybe that does give some credence to this rumor where maybe there was a brief time where the Briscoes were like, okay, we do want to come back to wrestling. And maybe there was a brief kind of some kind of disagreement. But whatever it was, obviously, if there was a disagreement, it got worked out because, and again, another one of those moments of weird modern day to through the years timeline kismet, like, Tony Khan just announced a day or two ago on the Ring of Honor pay-per-view conference call that he assigned the Briscoes to an exclusive Ring of Honor contract. And here we are covering the show where they come back to Ring of Honor. So, again, not the last pay-per-view, modern-day pay-per-view to our timeline coincidence that will happen on this show. Have they been in ROH continuously since this show? I don't know if they ever took another break or not, but, like... I mean, ROH has taken breaks, but have yeah. they specifically taken breaks from ROH? Hmm. I mean, yeah, I they have. I mean, God, I mean, they have been just the constant in Ring of Honor. It, it is more than anybody. But moving on, next we join Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger backstage. Daniels says BJ Whitmer has been a thorn in his side for the last couple of months, coming up to him again and again, complaining that Daniels didn't call Whitmer and he didn't reform the prophecy when he returned. Daniels says they had great times back then, but the reason why he never called Whitmer or brought back the prophecy is what he did to Allison Danger when he was gone. Daniels says Whitmer pays for it tonight. He's going to start and end it in one match. Gabe then says, cut from behind the camera, when Lacey walks up to Daniels and says she'd be more than happy to tell Daniels all about Whitmer, all his dirty secrets. Allison thinks Lacey should instead be focusing on Jimmy Jacobs, say it looks like she has a situation brewing there. Uh, Lacey says it's just business with her and Jimmy, and Jimmy's off training. He'll be back better than ever. Lacey again offers to tell them everything about Whitmer and tells Allison that women have to stick together in this business. And eventually, I guess this this argument convinces them because uh, the three end up walking away together with, I guess, the insinuation that Lacey's going to tell them 
all the incredible secrets on how to beat DJ Whitmer. It's funny that this is a show with a number of like, you know, kind of big matches, matches that like settling feuds or matches that are continuing big feuds or like big title matches or matches that have been built up over a few shows. And none of them get like backstage promos to build them up. Except for the match that doesn't happen, which is this one. I thought that was kind of a funny little uh, quirk of the show. Yeah, it, I guess it, it almost kind of felt like to me like a way to get Lacey on the show and yeah. continue the DJ Whitmer feud. And um, But the thing is they kind of – I mean you know, they, they do sort of continue the BJ Whitmer feud because you know Jimmy Jacobs is still involved with BJ. But obviously BJ's focus greatly shifts to the CZW feud after this show. Yeah, definitely. And also, did you think I was thinking watching this promo like Daniels? It was almost too good a comeback for Whitmer because Whitmer for a bunch of shows now is you know was confronting Daniels, being like you know you you know you hung us out to dry, Chris. You know why do you abandon the prophecy? And like Daniels here basically being like you beat up Alice in Danger, like my manager and good friend. Like why would I want to be your friend ever again? I was like. That's such a good reason that, like, it almost makes me wonder, why didn't you just tell Whitmer that before? Like, like Maybe they didn't think of it. <laughs> Maybe they forgot. They were like, oh, yeah, that, that's what he should say. Like, that, that, that's just, like, a very good reason why yes. he would not want to be friends with him again. But um, next we get a new top five rankings video. Low Key is still at number five. Jimmy Rave at four. Alex Shelley at three. Christopher Daniels at two, and Roderick Strong at number one. Meanwhile, besides Loki, who's obviously gone, Daniels, I t- he doesn't get a title shot. <laughs> like, So it's interesting that he's like sticking around at number two. Yeah, and Rave at four, Shelley, and Strong obviously will be very quickly. Daniel- I mean, Danielson will get to go through all of them starting tonight. But yeah, the other two, not so much. I wonder if maybe they were still thinking in the back of their head, maybe there's still a shot that we're going to get that three-way, you know, that th- that rematch from the first show. Yeah, yeah, maybe. That would make a lot more sense then if you were going, building to a key Daniels, which we know they were for the 100th show. Having them at five and two makes a lot more sense. But, yeah, it never happens. So um, still, a, still time, Tony Khan. But next we have a four-corner survival match. Adam Pierce defeated Azrael, Claudio Castagnoli, and Jay Theory in 11 minutes, 20 seconds, when he pinned Azrael after he hit a top rope splash. So, uh, Matt, on the last show, I criticized the four-way we saw on that show for being devoid of personality, even for a random four-way. Um, I thought this is a four-way that shows just what a little bit of character and a hot crowd can do, because this match may or may not actually have a little bit less moves with a Z than the previous show's four-way, but I actually think there's this match is more entertaining, because there's more glue holding it together, and the glue here is Adam Pierce and Claudio Castagnoli getting into it in the entire match. Like, Pierce is mocking Claudio. They're each blind tagging the other. At one point, Pierce needs to make a tag, but Claudio drops down to the floor, so he can't. It's nothing major, but it's something the match can keep coming back to that at least gives you kind of like a consistent little bit of a character point and a story point that just the, these two are really getting on each other's nerves and they're both charismatic. And it helps that it also pays off directly in the finish where Azrael's down on the mat, Claudio has Pierce sitting on the top turnbuckle ready to hit a move on him. But then Fury and Claudio wrestle a little bit. And this their sequence ends with Fury taking Claudio out with a dive to the floor. And so Pierce kind of just comes to still sitting on the top turnbuckle with Asriel still like laying out cold in the ring. And so Pierce just jumps off the top turnbuckle with a splash and gets the win. So it, it kind of pays off where Claudio and Pierce are antagonizing each other the whole match. Claudio almost has Pierce dead. 
and then kind of through, almost through like a banana peel win, Pierce kind of just finds the match gift wrapped for him because Claudio gets taken out. So, you know, it, it's it's nothing great, but I thought this was like an above average, enjoyable little four way. And you know, you know me, I'm often a kind of hard on four ways. Yeah, I probably liked it a little bit less than you. Um, it was fine, um, but not particularly memorable. It's interesting to see Claudio here in that fa- in the sense that, like he's similar to what he is now, but also so different. You know, like yeah. he's just a much light, more lighthearted character. You know, definitely you know throws his weight around a little bit less. He still does a lot of the European uppercuts and stuff like that. But you know, like now he's just like a, such a serious like monster of a wrestler who like just is like considered just like. So, like, you know, like, outclassing everybody and, and his execution is perfect. Whereas, you know, back then he, you know, was a little bit more lighthearted with the A's and he doesn't, you know, doesn't really show off his power quite as much. He still does a little bit, but obviously his his body is just not as jacked as it is now. Just interesting to see that, you know, as a guy who's going to be, you know, in the ROH title match uh, on the show that's the day after we're recording this um, so many years later um, – you know, obviously Pierce is still doing a lot of this, the silly stuff, but not quite as silly as it was in the first few appearances in ROH. Um, the one thing that did annoy me, because I still am enjoying Jay Fury, like when I yeah. see him, I still think he's a, he impresses me with some of his big spots. But the crowd, and I remember this from being there live, they just wanted to chant that he uh, that he looked like D'Lo Brown. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I mean, the body types and the gear are similar, you know, but like... It must be really annoying for him to just like they, they just call him D'Lo, and like he does like he does a couple nods to it, like he does the D'Lo Brown leg drop at one point, but it's just like I don't know to literally just call him D'Lo. It's like it's it's disrespectful, and from a crowd that's supposed to be more respectful, you know what I mean? Like like if he appeared at like a a random indie show where it's just people who watch WWE or on TV, and then they're going to an indie show because hey, it's wrestling in the neighborhood, and then they chant D'Lo, it's like. That's something that you might expect, but to go to an ROH show where it's like these are supposed to be people that you know really root for up and coming wrestlers and stuff, to just chant D'Lo at him, it just it was it felt rude to me. I don't know, maybe like no, I, I I agree, and like it's different if they're an established heel, which he wasn't. He's a he's a babyface, but like if you're calling Xavier AC Slater, that's okay, right? Like, would you agree? But yeah, yeah. Well, that's because well, first of all, it's not another wrestler. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but. Like this reminds me of we just had a show recently where well probably a few shows ago but where Kid Mikazi and Jason Blade won their first matches and like they were looking good and the crowd wouldn't stop like chanting Rufio at Kid Mikazi and that's I I had the same feeling there as you did here where it must suck to be like working your ass off and the only thing that's getting a reaction of the crowd is your resemblance to somebody else well you know even just in life it's annoying like you ever have that thing where you're walking around someone's like hey you know who you look like and it's just like all right like i didn't i didn't ask you who i look like you know i have a rule this is on a genuine rule i never unless prompted like like someone asks me like i'm never i will never go up to somebody and just like tell them like who i think they look like like I feel like even if you're trying to compliment with somebody with saying it, it it often doesn't come off that way. There's just no there's just no benefit of like telling somebody they look like somebody else. That is a rule that I have in life. And I feel like, you know, wrestling crowds might do well to have that rule. Um because, you know, I like Jay Fury and they they just they just called him D'Lo. You know what's worse than that is when someone calls like the worst version of that is when someone says you look like somebody and it's not a good-looking person. 
Like, well, yeah, of course. They don't think it's a good looking person. Like I remember once when I was a little kid, um, my dad forced me to go to a Dwight Yoakam show. I did not want to go to, but my parents made the trade that if I went to Dwight Yoakam, we would get to go to a nitro and <laughs> the incredible life I lived, Matt. But, um, there was a drunk woman that kept yelling at my dad the whole time. You look like Richard kind. <laughs> you want to look up who Richard kind is. He's a character actor. I've heard podcast interviews with him. He's a jovial, great guy, good performer, but like, yeah, we all know Richard kind. He's been on everything. No, no one wants to probably be compared. Like no, no one's gonna be enthusiastic. Be like, really? You think I look like Richard Kind? Dare I hope? Like, yeah, I yeah. Just kept yelling at my dad. <laughs> I just felt like I remember just that night. You talk about that. And it just remind me, like, like what's someone supposed to do when someone yells? Like, is he supposed to say thank you, or is that supposed to start a conversation, like about Spin City? Like, wh- what are you supposed to do when someone chants, "You look like D'Lo Brown"? Like. Was he? Yeah. Did they want him to hit the low down at that? Point? Well, he did do a D'Lo Brown move. He did do that. So he basically did as much as he could possibly do. He did the leg drop. But yeah, no, it's true. Like I know like, when I, you know, when I was younger, it's not like I've never been guilty of doing that. Of like, say, yo, you look like blah blah blah. But like, I've come to realize as I've gotten older, like it's just not not a nice thing to do. Yeah, and, and the funny thing is, when people do it, it's like. It's so subjective because I've been told that I've looked like so many different people. Some are flattering. Some are very unflattering. It's just like – but like it's not like everybody agrees, you know? So it's just like what are you doing? Like you, you obviously don't even know what half of these people actually look like. Anyway, yeah, and this is another match. We're getting back to the match um, where um, Claudio does a super long delayed uh, vertical suplex on Jay Fury. So two di- vertical suplexes here and um, – I guess the last little note, Matt, this is uh, Asriel's final match in Ring of Honor as a regular. He does, I think, do a couple dark matches in the future. But, you know, Asriel's a guy who is still working in places like GCW to this day. At but one point, is- yeah. it was. It's kind of sad to see because he's been, he's been a mainstay since very early on. It, it, at one point, by the way, um, Prezak refers to Asriel as the suicidal demon, which I assume is a, a nickname he's used on other indies, but... I don't remember them ever calling him that in ROH, do you? I think we made we heard it for the first time one or two shows ago and we made fun of them. I mean made fun of that nickname. We we were like How can you be suicidal if you're in hell? Like aren't you already dead? But uh It's true. Um Pro Wrestling Torch wrote at the time, Azrael and Ring of Honor have parted ways. The door is open for him to return at some point in the future. It wasn't open that much apparently, because again, he just does a couple, I think, dark matches down the road. But uh, that brings us, Matt, to our next uh, – our odd coincidence, odd coincidence match of the night. Samoa Joe defeated Jay Lethal via pinfall in 14 minutes, 21 seconds after he hit the muscle buster. So 16 years later, Matt, tomorrow night as we record this, this will be a rematch referencing this history. And this was also – speaking of guys' final matches in Ring of Honor – this would be Jay Lethal's final match of Ring of Honor as a regular. He would come back for three matches in the summer, and obviously he would come back as a regular years down the road when his TNA run ended. But in terms of like the Gabe Ring of Honor that you know that we know that we love that we cover, and in terms of him being a every show regular, this is it for him. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it is interesting. I mean, of course, then he comes back and has one of the. You know, probably our greatest ROH runs of anybody, right? Yeah. Like, 
So, and, you know, and I think he's sort of in one, you know, like the Briscoes, I think he's sort of like one of the Mr. ROHs out there. And, you know, that's obviously why he's being, you know, placed in a major position in ROH um, to this day um, by the, the new Tony Khan version. And speaking of which, this is a big blow-off match between Samoa Joe and Jay Lethal. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this, but one of the top matches on Death Before Dishonor 2022, which I don't even remember what number Death Before Dishonor that would be, maybe 19, um, is Jay Lethal versus Samoa Joe. That's weird, right? Yeah, and they're literally, like, referencing this with, like, you know, like, Jay Lethal is referencing, you know, You Are My Mentor, which obviously is a storyline that was built in Ring of Honor during the era we covered. Like, the story of of their match today, or tomorrow, I guess, is basically the story of this match, you know? It's crazy. Like, it's not even, like, a new layer of things on top of it. Really, it's just picking it back up. Well, a new layer of really tall people on top of it. That guy's there. Um, but yeah, um, it's it's a weird way for Lethal to go out because they really built him up before this. Like they were building him to be a big deal as a heel. And he's, got, he's gotten better. Like, you know, I, I criticized his heel performance at um, Hellfreeze is Over. And it's definitely gotten better over the past few shows. And he comes out with like a bandana now <laughs> with sunglasses, which I think it's fun. So my memory of this match live was that I was kind of disappointed in it because – I um I really like love their babyface match at Manhattan Mayhem. I was a bit disappointed in their match at Steel Cage Warfare 2 where Lethal turned heel heel. But watching this back, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did live. I guess my expectations were lower and that's, you know, that helped. Cuz it was, you know, it was slow at times and it wasn't, you know, they didn't go all out to have this like ultimate blow-off match. But it was an entertaining, well-worked match, you know? I mean, Joe you know, worked it very aggressively early. Um, he, uh, you know, he's, he, but like very quickly, lethal gets the advantage, like to a surprising degree. Lo- Joe doesn't get a ton of like shine at the beginning. Lethal slows it down a lot. He, he, you know, taunts him with slaps to the back of the neck. He's, he's showing some heelish arrogance. Um, he's, he's working over Joe's neck some more. He does, he does, he does a flare style rolling knee, which, you know, another thing that's a current event, Lethal is going to be in supposedly Ric Flair's last match. And you see that, you know, even though Lethal is already starting to do the Randy Savage thing with the bandana and the sunglasses, he's still throwing in a little bit of flair in there too with the, with the knee and stuff like that. So you get to see, you know, his, in this one match, you get to see Lethal's love for both of those guys, uh, Savage and Flair. Um, uh, at one point, it's funny, Lethal has Joe outside and, like, you know, throws him into the guardrail, and he's trying to get him back in the ring, and Sinclair's like, put Joe back in the ring! And and Lethal's just like, he's heavy! Which, you know... I, I love mean, that. That was so good. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. He is probably, probably is pretty heavy, probably hard to throw him into the ring. Um, so, when Joe starts coming back, um, he starts getting aggressive again, like kind of what you'd expect at the beginning. Kicks him in the head, knocks him down, drags him all over by the hair. Then he does a delayed vertical suplex. Um, three for three on the show. Yep. Not as impressive as Claudio's, but no. so the crowd didn't get quite as excited, but it was the third in a row. Um, 
at one point, Joe actually does a fallaway slam, which it's always fun to see guys who you like, you kind of know what to expect from them do moves you don't expect, mm-hmm. especially given that this is like way in the past. But I don't remember seeing Joe doing fallaway slams before or since. I mean, I'm sure this yeah. is not the only time, but it's not common. Um, at one point, um, Joe blocks a dragon suplex with elbows and Lethal hits his own Joe-style power slam, which was pretty impressive to do on Samoa Joe. Lethal is a sneakily strong guy. Um, you know, he was only 20 years old here. Uh, yeah, that is so crazy that he was that young. Like, Yeah. You know, it makes me feel kind of bad because sometimes I've been, you know, I think we've been fair, but like criticizing, oh, like his, how he was in slow and coming around as, as a character and his promos and stuff. But I think it's all been fair and we've been kind of cognizant of his age, but like, you know, he was a teenager during most of that. Like, like I do almost feel guilty. Like it almost feels like it's not fair to criticize anyone as a teenager for not being good at like a top level yeah. at something. Yeah. When he did, when he did the infamous tonight is the night I've been waiting for, he was 19 years old. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, I mean, that, that's, that, nuts. that's a fact. Yeah. But, um, he, um, you know, like, but like I said, when, when Joe's on offense, he definitely does work it. Like he's, you know, furious at lethal, which I think helps. Like he, he grabs him by the hair, then by the face. And in, uh, when he, when lethal's in a, uh, in a hold, he, you know, he does the running knee to the corner. Lethal rakes Joe's eyes to get out of the muscle buster and Joe blocks the running vertical suplex. So lethal clubs at his back and hits it. And then lethal just springs right up, goes through the diving headbutt. And the crowd actually does buy that near fall. Like when he hits the diving headbutt. Um, but then the finish comes extremely abruptly. Joe blocks a second suplex, puts Lethal on the top rope, hits an enziguri, and then muscle buster and gets the win. I feel like this was a good match. And I feel like the thing that stopped it from being very good is they should have built to the finish more. Like I think like this was had some momentum. I think this was an in- in- entertaining match. I feel like they could have done like three to five more minutes and – done some more near falls and had some more drama and it could have been a really good match. And I don't know why they just decided they didn't need to do that, but cause the finish just came really out of nowhere. But I thought that it was fun. Like it wasn't everything it could have been like they, they clearly didn't like work it as like the ultimate blow off. Like there were obviously bigger matches later on the show and they didn't want to overshadow them, I guess. And lethal was on the way out, but this was a fun match. These are both like good wrestlers that were showing personality and seemed to be having a good time and the crowd enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it. So maybe this is expectations because I felt revisiting this match all these years later more like you said you felt when you watched this live. I I was I thought this was a good like decent match like three stars, but like I was disappointed by it and and I do feel like this kind of reminds me of like Lethal's had a couple feuds like this where like the low key feud and this feud or series of matches at least with Joe were like. Their first match is pretty darn good, and then no match afterwards kind of hits that level. And I think my pro- one of my problems with this match was uh, normally I like matches that aren't like your move, my move, back and forth. Like I like those kinds of matches, but we see them so often in modern wrestling. But I felt like this was a match where the story just kind of wasn't what I wanted in the sense of, like lethal dominates the first third to a half of this match. And I just didn't uh, after Joe gets a very initial flurry and I just didn't buy that lethal would get like Joe gives lethal more here than he gives most people. And I just kind of didn't really buy it. And Jay's offense controlling Joe 
wasn't boring, but it wasn't enthralling either. And it was just a long sequence of him kind of being in control with Joe getting very little in the way of comebacks here or there. And then, like you said, when Joe does come back, you know, you get the kind of abrupt finish and it just, it did not feel like a feud ending match to me. It did not have, you know, I thought Joe did a decent job of selling like his distaste for lethal. There's that neat spot where he keeps dragging on uh, lethal around by the hair and releasing it on a, fu- on a four count, doing a little bit of Brian Danielson almost instead of a, the ref's five count. But, I just I didn't feel like Jay Lethal really re- wrestled this like this was like the big end to a feud, and even Joe I felt did a little bit more, but it still wasn't quite at that level, and it did feel more like what it was, which is just kind of like a kind of abrupt end to one guy's ROH run, like it's third from the bottom, you know. There's not much in the way of like epic near falls, which you kind of want for a big feud ending match. You point out I think the one good near fall which was when Lethal hits the running vertical suplex in the flying head, but that is the one near fall I felt like that the crowd really like bit into, but um, or bit for whatever, they didn't chew it. But um, all that said, it's still a good match. Like these guys are such pros. It's still enjoyable. It's just not kind of what I wanted from this kind of match. And I just felt like it was a little too much of, Joe just letting Jay run things for a while. It was a little too much of that for me. Um, It'd be interesting to compare this to what the, whatever they do in 2022. Like, what what's better, what's worse? I assume that the 2022 match will be a lot more overbooked. Yeah, and obviously Joe is not in the same physical condition, but they're both way more experienced. And yeah, know. Joe Joe is you know obviously yeah he's physically older and more beaten up. Lethal is better though. Lethal is better than he was then. Like so. You know, they're, they're, you know, you kind of give a little bit of a trade-off. And so uh, Greg Chornomaz from his live report gives us this little tidbit that did not, did not make the DVD. He says, after the match, Joe got on the mic and told Lethal that he thought he had what it took, but that he was beaten. So that whole little end, I don't know if that was just cut for time or because they figured, hey, Lethal's gone now, so why spend any more time like – yeah. Also, also that promo doesn't that doesn't say anything. <laughs> it's, like that's that's this you know that's a nothing promo. Um, the Observer had a quote about why this was Lethal's last match as a regular. Melcher wrote, "Jay Lethal is no longer being booked. Lethal, who just turned twenty, took it well and was told that the door is open for them to do business again in the future. But Sapolsky felt he didn't want to spend time pushing him to be a new star when he can give the same push to someone not under a TNA contract." It's an attempt to stop relying on using many TNA guys. The feeling is that is that Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels are top guys, but Lethal isn't any more over than someone who someone else who could be put into the same position that isn't under a TNA contract. It's uncertain how long AJ Styles would be used, but he is booked on most upcoming shows. Homicide will still be used because they don't know the long term of the LAX gimmick. So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, this was. We talked about this on the last show on Scripted 2 that, you know, this was going to signal a change and we can, you know, AJ Styles is going to be phased out in the medium term. Same with Alex Shelley. You know, Abyss is already gone. This was Gabe, uh, you know, basically kind of protecting himself, saying, you know, unless it's a guy I feel is such a big star, it's worth the risk. I am going to rely on as few TNA wrestlers now as I can. I think it ends up working out okay for him to make yeah. when he makes that decision too. Definitely. Um, 
Next, we get a long video showing highlights of the previous year of Ring of Honor, and I mean long in that it's – I timed it out. It's, I think it's around seven minutes, and this is only the first video of two we'll see tonight. And this video, which is seven minutes, only covers the start of 2005 through Punk the Final Chapter in August. But it, it is very extensive. I would say it covers like highlights of every major angle and match finish. Like that's uh, b- important from every show. Yeah, they try to they try to hit every single show. Yeah, so it is extensive. If you want just a recap of the year in very rapid fire highlight form, this show's worth it just for that cuz you're going to get between the two segments probably like 10 minute like a 10 minute recap video of the fourth year of Ring of Honor. But that brings us to BJ Whitmer versus Christopher Daniels, scored to the ring by Alice Danger and Lacey, and it went to a no contest in 5 minutes. Uh, wow! Wow, it was actually five minutes long. I didn't even like that's that's longer than I, it felt. Yeah, well, sometimes with these no contests, you don't know how the people like. I don't know who was doing the timing for this. You know, it's always one of those weird things. Is when do you put push stop on like your on the Green Lantern fan um, wrist you know wrist timer? But uh, I did notice that Allison Danger came to the ring. She had a new new costume element, which I quite liked in a very corny way she had a glow-in-the-dark halo above her head like on a wire which i thought very corny but i enjoyed it um gabe gets on the mic to tell us that lacy told daniels earlier in the night that she's going to tell him everything she knows about bj and it was gabe doing his old lecherous perv thing which we have both railed on but matt i have to admit i i laughed at that like I have to be honest, like, it was so stupid, I, I, I did laugh out loud. Well, I think it was also, it was put in there, like, with, like, the butt of the joke was Jimmy Bauer, right? Like, they, yeah. that the other announcers were like, oh man, shut up, that's so stupid, you know, like, get out of here. Which, yeah. I guess, makes it a little bit less bad. It is funny, and we'll see this later in the night, like, it is funny how much they've turned Gabe's, char- you know, announcer character, Jimmy Bauer, the guy who for multiple years was, like, the voice of Ring of Honor into like this comic this relief joke. Like yeah. they portray him as an alcoholic who just barges in and doesn't really have anything to do. And like, they're always making fun of him when he does or stuff like this. Like it, it, it's kind of funny that they've just turned him into that. Yeah. But, I, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that it shows that Gabe is a good sport about that stuff yeah. as, as you know, not great. Some of those lines about the women, are like it's at least at this point it seems like he realizes that and is making fun of himself about it yeah i think we in a brief interaction we had on twitter like years ago like i think gabe is more down on his commentary than you and i are like yeah like he he, he's like yeah i was awful oh yeah yeah no yeah i one time on twitter i told him like you were a little bit underrated because like there were some matches where i do think he enhanced it i I, you know i'm on record for saying that the commentary on the jay briscoe versus samoa joe match this cage match made the match much better like and i love that match and i you know he says like nope i fired myself like i was terrible like so yeah i mean was he the best commentator of all time no but i don't think he's as bad as he thinks he was yeah so um as for this match itself, it was obviously just a taste, and it was funny. For a second, I was like, why is this match is supposed to be like the big – they've been building up this feud for multiple shows. Why is this so short? And then reading the like news around this match after I had watched the show, I forgot that obviously one of the recent matches we saw with Daniels, Matt, was that one with Matt Seidel where he hurt himself very early in the match. Apparently, Daniels had to get 
received some minor knee surgery between that match and this one. So this was basically a way of, uh, according to like the newsletters of protecting him. So he didn't have to do that much. didn't have to do a full match, but could still like work the show. So basically what we get here is just a taste. It's like a very basic match until Whitmer kicks Daniel's bad knee, which, you know, commentary tells us has kept Daniel's out for a month after the Matt Seidel match. And um, from there, Daniel sees red. He uh, gets really pissed off. He spears Whitmer. He takes the fight outside. The two trade chair shots, and they brawl into the crowd, which is largely wasted on us because there's no lighting at the crowd. And at times, in fact, the screen is pitch black. I think at one point, one of them gets, like, thrown into chairs that we do not see it at all. We can only hear it. So, again, a big spot that gets missed out on. And then... As they continue to brawl to the back of the building, Chris Hero runs into the ring along with a bunch of CDZW wrestlers. The one I really could pick out was obviously uh, Necro Butcher. Yeah, as uh, a as a unless you're like a really like you know major CZW fan, it just felt like a bunch of guys plus Chris yeah. Hero and Necro Butcher. Like I'm not even totally sure they are CZW wrestlers. Like are they? You know, like yeah. I, I I can't even say that for sure because there are CZW people that I recognize, but these guys were just like in. Black T-shirts. Chad Shaft might have been back, man. We forgot about Shaft, but um, <laughs> <laughs> Chris Hero. So yeah, he runs in the ring. He proclaims that he's you know, Heroes here is really good at being kind of like the guy who's no, he's he's being annoying. He's like I'm back, and a bunch of the CCW wrestlers are with him. Hero sings Happy Birthday, but he ends it with Happy Birthday, fuck you. As the CCW wrestlers are keeping out any Ring of Honor staff that's attempting to get in the ring and stop them. Hero talks about ruining Ring of Honor's birthday when Adam Pierce finally finds a way to sneak into the ring. He tackles Hero. BJ Whitmer and a bunch of the wrestlers who had already worked tonight soon, like, join him back in the ring. They're brawling with the CZW guys. Austin Aries is in the melee. Uh, Broadit Strong's there. Just to see a people brawling, the crowd is absolutely losing their minds for this. Like, just this huge, this is, you know, the largest scale brawl we've seen in this feud so far. Uh, the ring clears as everyone moves to the outside. And Chris Hero then sneaks his way back into the ring, gets the mic again, and he starts asking, like, who's going to stop me? Who's going to stop me? Samoa Joe comes out. The two brawl in the middle of the ring. Again, crowd going nuts. Somebody somebody sets off a confetti popper at this point, so they're fighting among confetti. That was literally my next, my next line was, for some reason, the ring fills with confetti as they fight. Such a weird moment. When that, when that happens, it's always because it's a fan who does it. Yeah. It's always weird because, like, we get confetti later in the night, but it's always weird, like... That was also, that was also a fan, by the way. Yeah, it's weird when, like, a fan brings confetti. You're thinking, okay, you bring confetti, like, you're going to um, save it for, like, a big rang entrance, right? Like, what's the fan's logic? They're like, I'm so excited. You know what? I'm spending my confetti now, like, during this, like, heated brawl. Like, you know what yeah. this needs? A bunch of colorful paper. You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a weird thing. Like, And now that moment will be immortalized in time, or has been, where they're fighting just among confetti. <laughs> so, um... Joe gets Hero in the rear naked choke. Necro Butcher breaks it up. But he's almost immediately attacked by Adam Pierce, who's back in the ring now. Hero runs away as the Ring of Honor wrestlers chase the CZW wrestlers out of the ring, and they stand tall. And we get a huge Ring of Honor chant, followed by a big Samoa Joe chant as he stands on the ring apron. A bunch of the Ring of Honor wrestlers behind him. Greatly kind of visual there. We then get a big fuck you Hero chant. And just as everyone is almost done leaving the, leaving the ring, this is all settled down, the Briscoes attack Austin Aries. They start fighting with him and Roderick Strong. Wrestlers return to the ring to break that up and hold them back. The crowd chants let them fight very loudly. And as that calms down, 
Colt Cabana Caban- and Homicide Brawl through the curtain to ringside. So before we get to the match that leads to, I guess we should just talk about the segment. This was a crazy segment. I would say the most heated CZW Ring of Honor segment so far. Certainly the largest scale with all the people. And of course, kind of a classic bit of Gabe booking because Gabe loves the, the giant schmoz with a million people segment that ends up like connecting into multiple feuds so it was, it was, it's, an, it's an ecw inspired thing yeah, yeah and it doesn't always work but i think it definitely worked here yeah and it definitely obviously we get the ccw feud we get the start of the briscoe's airy strong feud you know it kind of all starts in the middle of a different feud the the whitmer daniels feud which isn't over like and then of course you know yeah homicide and cabana organically just come to the ring so just four different feuds that are all getting involved but I forgot, like, I am, again, um, not shocked, but I forgot how hot people were for the CZW feud, like, right from the start. Like, this wasn't something where people liked it, but then it slowly grew. It was like, in every town so far we've seen the CZW feud introduced, like, it feels like it's been red hot right from the start. Like, the fans were ready from, like, show one. Like, we really like this idea. Yeah, I, I mean, but this was the best, like so far, yeah. like by far, like absolutely. this was this is I would call this a absolute classic segment. Like it just worked so well, like one of the best non wrestling segments I think we've ever seen from ROH, honestly. Um, just in terms of like the momentum that it had, like I remember being there live, and like you wanted, like okay, if we're gonna do this CZW feud, let's do it right. Like who's the ROH's face, and it's Samoa Joe, and like so when Joe came out to confront Chris Hero, it was like oh shit, like it's on now. And then just to have the, the the whole Briscoes thing happen on the back of that, it just, I think, put it over the top. Like, obviously, the Daniels-Whitmer match was a total afterthought, like, not even worth talking about. You know, Daniels was injured, so it's fine. But um, but this was just made up for it so much, and I think, obviously, Gabe knew that. The crowd loved it, like, and, you know, and there'll be twists and turns in the road in the CZW feud, obviously. It did remind me, though, you know, of certain things that they never got to in the CZW feud, like a Samoa Joe versus Chris Hero singles match. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think like, oh, there was so more, there was more they could have done in that CZW feud. And I guess we could talk about it once we finally get to the end of it. But like, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's good in the end that they didn't do, they didn't do every little thing they could have done. And they just made it like more concise and just did what they needed to do. Like, maybe that's fine. Like that they just hit all the most important beats and didn't suck every last little drop out of it that they could have. I don't know. But I, I can it, pro- it probably also hurts that like CZW did not really ring much. Like you know, if Ring of Honor did not get every drop, CZW got barely any juice out of this. They didn't book yeah. many Ring of Honor guys on many shows, and it feels like you know that almost puts more pressure on Ring of Honor to book every big match possible in this feud because like the whole other half of this feud wasn't really utilizing it very much. Yeah, and again, again, like it's probably fine. Like, I mean, Samoa Joe has wrestled Chris Hero in other places. I'm sure that match would have been really cool, but you know, there are all, there are always the limitations with in, because of the TNA involvement and stuff. So, you know, it makes sense maybe that Joe's involvement in this feud was multi man matches. They had a, a pretty famous match for IWA Mid South fans, yep. like in IWA Mid South Hero and Joe, where it was like a true like split crowd, where you had like half of the fans were like totally into Joe because Joe was Joe and awesome and like one of the base stars on the indies and half the fans were like no like Chris Hero's our home promotion guy like fuck Samoa Joe yeah I remember back in the day I asked you like what IWA Mid-South shows should I get and that was the one that was one you definitely recommended to me 
Yeah, I remember uh, Scott Christ, like uh, currently BP might know on Twitter as Tape Machines Are Rolling. That was a, a show he raved about that match, like that being an incredible live experience just to be like, you know, one of those times where it's a 50-50 or like a split crowd, but it's not like the crowd chanting both of their names. Like it was legit. Some people had a rooting interest in one guy and some had a rooting interest in the other guy. So those are always really cool. But that brings us to the Ghetto Street Fight. Homicide with Julius Smokes defeated Colt Cabana via ref stoppage in 18 minutes, 56 seconds after he pile-drived him off the apron onto a table. I didn't notice I'm not saying through a table because, in fact, what happens is he pile-drives him onto the table and the table does not break. It just flips over and they both fall to the floor. Uh, Matt, you know, this was, I would say this was, you know, part match, but part, again, like a lot of these Homicide Cabana matches, kind of just an angle. You know, a lot of story being told through the booking of this match. So, what what'd you think about it? Yeah, I mean, in in ways, it was was a submission match, but they never re- they didn't establish that until like I think like in the middle of the match that that was how you win. Like they didn't like announce that right from the get go. Unless I missed something. Am I wrong about that? Was this a submission match? Well, they said at one point the only, you, there's no pinfalls. The only way to win is if the oh. if the other person quits. And they meant they mentioned it on commentary, like kind of in the middle of the match. Um, so yeah, yeah the, so I guess I guess I'm right because you didn't even pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so this, yeah, there were no pinfalls in the match. So, but you're right. Like, I was going to say the same thing. This was more of an angle because really it was very dominated by Homicide. Like, it was, you know, at the beginning, Cabana's in control. You know, he's just, he's just punching Homicide in the head over and over again. But, you know, Homicide gets control at some point and Cabana blades after Homicide chucks a chair at his head. And, you know, he gets smokes there, like, kind of adding the audio track. Like, he's screaming at Cabana, you bleed, you bleed, you taste your blood. Which, you know, I think does add certain amount of atmosphere to the match. Um, at one point, you know, smokes is handing weapons to Homicide, for instance, like a razor. Like, not like a straight razor, but like, you know, like a shaver that you would use. Yeah. Like, and he starts, like, slicing Cabana's head with that. Um, Starts using the ROH sign, like in the guardrail. Um, you know, Homicide, like, Cabana will keep coming back and he gets his, like, fighting spirit face on, and, like, Cabana, Homicide will keep cutting him off. You know, hits the running boot to Cabana's bleeding face. And I'd say this is, it's not a CM Punk level blade job, but it is definitely one of Cabana's best blade jobs. Yeah. Like, it's, like, it's, because he's had some you know, ones that we've kind of said, okay, not so great. He's not as good as Punk at this, but this was, this was a, a really respectable one. Um, um, I still got annoyed at the crowd for chanting "We want tables" in the middle of all this violence, as that's a pet peeve of mine. But um, I do. I, I was very annoyed at that. Yeah, but I um, but you know, had to get over it. Um, at one point, uh, Homicide escapes out the back of a Colt forty-five attempt and takes him down with a clothesline, and he goes, he gets a hold on, and he, oh, and then wait, excuse me. Uh, Cabana tries to choke out Homicide with his own arm while pulling his injured shoulder in the process, and Homicide's selling is extremely verbal. He's like, nah, 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 I'm not giving up, which you don't hear very often. Um, but, you know, they go back and forth. Homicide hits a lariat, um, and that's the point where the announcers say this is the only way to win is for the opponent to quit. Um, Homicide uh, does a kind of a reference to the Night of Tribute match because he starts trying to choke Cabana out with a Hanger again, and at that point, the announcers are again are screaming that Homicide's going to kill him. So Sinclair calls for the calls for the bell, and Homicide is declared the winner of the match. And this is when the story really kicks in, 
Because Homicide walks out, he's celebrating, Cabana is struggling to his knees, and he gets on the mic and he says he never gave up, and if he wants the match to end, quote, you'd better fucking kill me. And the Rottweilers are all looking, like, uh, Reyes is out, and they're like, this guy's crazy. And then Cabana says, this match is officially restarted, you fucking asshole. Which, you know, I think, feel like when, normally when a wrestler loses a match, they can't just say, actually, we're starting again. But um, I guess in a ghetto fight, you can do that. Um, so Homicide comes back, uh, Cabana tries to elbow him, but you know, very quickly, Homicide is back in control, hits an ace crusher. Um, Cabana hits a divorce court to the injured shoulder, and he starts really going after the shoulder now. He's like clawing it, he's biting at it, he's, he grabs a chair, but uh, Smokes grabs his leg, and that's, and so Homicide is able to smash the chair across his back, and Reyes is out, and they're triple teaming Homicide, and now, just like they did the reference to the Night of Tribute, and then they do a reference to Vendetta because they're tying Cabana's to the ring post like they did when they tried to cut Cabana's tongue out. But instead of cutting Cabana's tongue out, I would say probably this to me the sickest spot of the whole match. Um, Cabana is totally helpless in the corner, tied up, and Homicide repeatedly chucks a chair at Cabana's face. Like, I feel like, I mean, this is a different time, and I know, like, Cabana said, you know, probably agreed to it, but like, that felt so fucked up to me. I don't know if you felt the same way. Yeah, because again, for people that aren't seeing this, when Matt says like his his arms are tied away, like he cannot brace himself at all. So if you know, if homicide throws that chair, like however hard it comes, wherever it's going to hit, like, he does it twice. Yeah, he just has to take it. Yeah, and so at that point, obviously, uh, Sinclair stops the match again, and the crowd starts chanting, "He's not dead." Because I guess apparently they wanted him to be dead. I don't. I don't know. But Homicide looks in his face, looks in Cabana's face, and yells, "This is over. You hear me? I did this to you." Which I think is a pretty, you know, pretty good character work. I think. Yeah. And the Rottweilers walk out again, and then Cabana gets on the mic and says, "D Nelson, Nelson," and the crowd starts a, cha- a taunting Nelson chant at Homicide, and he says, "I, I still got a beat in my heart." You better come here and fucking finish me off. You picked on the wrong guy, motherfucker. If you leave now, little Nelson Jr. is going to think his daddy is a pussy. And at that point, that line gets Homicide back in the ring. And Cabana, again, will, you know, fights everyone off, takes Homicide onto the apron. They tease some big moves. But then Smokes gets on the apron and pours something in Cabana's eyes, which to me looked like water, but I don't know what it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be rubbing alcohol, but okay. yeah, it looks just like water, and clearly yeah. that's probably what it was. But yeah. I think they've done that before, too, and they're going to do it again later in the the idea of that's one of those spots they keep pouring that into his cuts, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously that you know burns Cabana's eyes, and Homicide just that's the end of the match. He takes, he, like you said, he pile drives him off the apron onto the table. The table falls over. They're they're done. Cabana is out, and at that point, the match is the match is over. And Homicide gets in Sinclair's face with the mic, and he says he wants a fight without honor in Chicago. Nobody disrespects me. I don't know if Sinclair is the person to ask about that, but you know, I think that really signals that the match is over. Homicide is furious, walking around the ring. He's throwing more chairs in the ring, continuing to taunt Cabana, who's unconscious. I think Homicide really put on a great performance. I actually think both guys put on a great performance. Um, I think it, you know, really told a good story. As a final gesture, Homicide 
wipes blood on the camera lens and yells, Cabana, you're dead. Fuck Ring of Honor and fuck easy and fuck CZW. This is Rottweiler territory. And, you know, the, the, the camera stays on Cabana when the lights come up and he gets to his feet with the help of three refs. But yeah, I, like you said, much more of an angle, but super dramatic. I think it told a great story. I think absolutely compelling. Um, I, you know, and unlike, I think unlike any other match that I could think of. Um, and I think that really puts it over the top for me as a, a really great thing. I mean, it was too brutal, like in certain points, like, and I think that could put off a lot of people. Um, I remember live, I think even being like, all right, this might be a little bit much. Um, but like looking back now, so many years later, I just appreciate the storytelling of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it was some really great storytelling. And I think great performances by both guys. Agreed. I, I think this is very good. Like I would put this as a match a little below four stars when you kind of add in the story. Like as a match, you know, I can see people not liking this because like you said, it's a little on the brute. It's on. It's not a little. It's quite a bit on the brutal side. And it's kind of a it's kind of a, like a, a, you know, a protracted squash. Yeah, exactly. It's funny because it's kind of, you know, I was it's kind of doing the things I criticized the Joe Lethal match for, but doing them right, I think, because this is another match even more so than Joe Lethal, where the heel dominates. I mean, Lethal dominated, you know, the first half of that match. Homicide basically dominates the entire match, just destroys Colt. Colt gets just these little comebacks. But I feel like the point is the Lethal-Joe match, to me, I didn't really feel like that was the story to tell was like Lethal dominating Samoa Joe, where this match, the whole point of this story, we're in the middle of the feud, is... Colt Cabana is basically playing Tommy Dreamer in like early ECW where he will not give up. You know, the whole feud's based on the fact that Homicide is kind of insulted that Colt thinks he's tough and, and Colt is like a chip on his shoulder now that people don't think he's tough. So, yeah, this entire feud, I mean, this entire match is Colt gets absolutely destroyed. But the point isn't that he's competitive because he's not. It's the idea that two times the match is stopped and two times Colt's like, I never gave up, you know, I'm never going to stop, you know, I'm, and he's proving how tough he is. And there's all sorts of little details I really like in the storytelling here. Like, I liked that they brought back the coat hanger. I liked, you know, that Smokes and Reyes interfered a little bit to give Colt just a little bit of an out. I love that visual right at the end, like you mentioned, after the match where Homicide is wiping Colt's cabana's blood on the camera and we can see it smeared still when it's like we're watching Colt after. I like that they even did that little thing that we rarely see these days in Ring of Honor where they actually show the lights coming on in the building for intermission and like Colt getting helped by the rest of the back. Like I like just little things like that that make it seem different from you angles you normally see. Like, oh, we're like seeing the uh, you know, things we usually don't see that are part of the show. But the one thing you mentioned that I really am glad you mentioned, because I think it's it's like kind of the key of this match, is we've talked in the past about how Homicide's one of those guys where like he is just a character of a human being and like he's great at being homicide. But when it's – we've talked about their segments where when he's required to do like acting, that's not just him being himself or his kind of his wrestling exaggerated version of himself. He's not good at it. I thought in terms of like acting like you mentioned, this is probably like the best homicide performance I've seen because this much kind of hinges on his acting in the sense because like the, after that, that first time the match is stopped with the coat hanger. Homicide's going to the back, and he's very jovial. And Dave Price on the commentary is like, the feud is over. And you can tell Homicide's like, he's like, kind of, re- like, 
he's not angry anymore. He's kind of got the scene like, I've proven what I'm going to do. He's like joking and jovial. And then Colt, when he gets on the mic and, you know, tells Homicide I'm still here, Homicide does a good job of selling like that kind of reaction of like, what the fuck? Like, he's still alive. He still wants more. Like, he's kind of not scared, but like a little bit like, what the hell's going on here? And then that second time the match stops and Colt gets back on the mic and says, you know, hey, Nelson Jr., Again, Homicide does a great job of then going now back to that. Now he's just obscenely angry in a way he wasn't for the rest of the match. Like he does a good job of telling the story of Homicide was ready for this all to be over. And Colt is just going to keep pushing him until it's not over. And by the end of the match, Homicide has won the match. And his first thought is to yell at the ref, Todd Sinclair, and say, you know, like you mentioned, like, I want another match with him. The only thing I thought was a little weird about that is. Homicide is saying that like, he's so angry. And it's like, if you're that mad, and this is, a, this is a feud where we've already seen Homicide try to cut Colt's tongue out and kill him with Drano, like, it's kind of weird to see him, like, have Colt completely unconscious and prone, and instead of just, like, continuing to get his revenge or trying to kill Colt again, he's, like, his response is to go yell at the ref and be like, I want another match. Like, why not? Like you have him right here if you really want that revenge that bad. Like you just you just want a match. You could keep beating him up if you want. You're clearly willing to do that. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I get it. There was a there was a point like you kind of mentioned though, where Homicide almost felt like he was like I don't want to go as far anymore. You know, like almost like yeah. I just want like you said I want this to be over. Like I'm showing mercy to you, Colt Cabana. And at the and now it's just like all right, I've had enough of this motherfucker for today. But I'm not going to be, you know, I want this to end once and for all, and I want to humiliate him in his hometown. Yeah. And um, the, another great detail in that, like, I even love, like, Todd Sinclair even, like, everyone does good acting in this match. I think the managers, the wrestlers, like, even Todd Sinclair at the very end where, you know, again, the story of this match is Todd Sinclair stopped the match twice and Colt keeps having it restarted. So when that third time ends, I think Todd Sinclair, like, I've never seen, like, he gets angry and he says something to the effect of, like, the ref, like, like, I mean, to the time he was like, stop the fucking match. Like, you could, like, even he's saying, like, uh, he, like, he's so pissed off that, like, this keeps going on and, you know, Colt getting brutalized. And then even when Bobby Cruz gets on, like, the mic, he's like, you know, the, you know, for the third time, like, he emphasizes, like, this is the third time the match has been ended. Like, I, I thought everyone did a really good job here of telling kind of the story of Colt Cabana is the guy who completely outmatched here, but he just will never give up. Absolutely. But yeah, overall, I think like this is one of the matches that elevates this show a lot. Like it makes it very memorable. And, you know, the most memorable part of this feud so far, I would say. I agree. So one thing I want to ask you, though, and I wonder if this is just a pet peeve of mine and if I'm just overthinking something. So Homicide, and he's done this before, but he does a bunch of Eddie Eddie Guerrero tribute stuff here. Like he does the... uh, uh, it does some of his mannerisms. He does. He says Odele. He even does the lasso from El Paso submission. And what do you feel about like you know during this feud, Homicide's about as dark a heel as he's ever going to be in Ring of Honor. Like on one hand, it's always touching when wrestlers. I don't want to tell wrestlers to not do tributes to like beloved recently deceased legends. But it's kind of weird when like Homicide in this feud is like this evil guy who basically did attempted murder. But he's also doing like loving tributes to a beloved babyface wrestler. Like it's it's weird to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I get your point, but if you hadn't said it, it never would have occurred to me. So yeah. I guess that's sort of how I would process I guess, that. I, I think it's probably one of those things that just for some reason hits me a little weird, and it probably like you will 
be completely fine or just go over the heads of most people. They'll be like, yeah, just something that happened. Um, Dave Meltzer wrote in The Observer, the idea behind this match is that they felt they need to break Cabana out of his comedy and entertainment role. You don't, you don't say. <laughs> months, months after they started doing that already. Yeah, exactly. Dave, a little slow on this one. And have him more of a, as a serious main event player. There's definitely a thought to push the non-TNA guys harder after what happened a few weeks ago, which Gabe Sapolsky said he took as a wake-up call. Although Sapolsky has also said he's had no negative interaction whatsoever with TNA since the incident. Yeah, I, I don't think, like, again, like you said, like, Dave, a little slow on this one. I don't think this cult push is necessarily because of the TNA thing, because it's been starting for months ago. But clearly, this year, Colt's going to get, like, a multiple world title matches. So, it's funny, though, because I wonder when they were starting this, how much of the hope of, like, how this would change Colt was. Because, like, when this feud is over, Colt does, you know, I mean, go back and incorporate a lot of the comedy right away again. In fact, I think he even says something in the media, like, I'm glad I can go back to doing, like, the more happy-go-lucky stuff. And I wonder if, like, if Gabe had a hope that maybe, like, this would completely turn Colt, like, 100% serious, where I think what we learned after this feud is, like, for Colt Cabana, I think personally, and I think as a fan, like, having some comedy in him is always going to be like an essential element, I think of Colt Cabana long-term. Yeah. Although, you know, it's interesting that in AEW, especially at least in the matches, he really didn't do that much comedy. Yeah. It's it's just interesting to see that. Although to be fair, he hasn't really gotten to do a, he hasn't really gotten to, to to show his stuff in AEW in that sense, because I think he would stick out more if he was allowed to do a bit more of the comedy. Well, that's what, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll see, we'll Um, see what his role is in the new ROH. Uh, yeah, definitely. That'll be interesting to see. I mean, as as far as I know, you know, we're doing this podcast, you know, Rampage is going to start soon. I think they're going to say they're going to announce a couple more matches to the show. I wouldn't be surprised as, as we're talking, doing this podcast, that Colt Cabana has a match announced for the pay-per-view. I wouldn't, wouldn't shock me. But uh, we go back to Jim Cornette in his office where he is just finishing getting a phone call informing you about the CZW run-in tonight. Cornette is understandably pissed and for the millionth time already in the short history of this feud calls the CZW wrestlers a jizz moppers at a peep show. Jim, get a second line for them, please, for the love of God. Uh, he calls Chris Hero Chris Zero, so very clever stuff here. Cornette says the first thing he did when he got home after the CZWs knocked out his tooth in Dayton wasn't going to the dentist, but going to the Louisville Slugger factory to get a new bat right off the assembly line. He shows us the bat. Cornette says Ring of Honor is banding together, and if CZW wants war, war is what they've got. CZW wrestlers won't need to mutilate themselves for much longer. Jim's going to do it for them. Cornette says he takes his new bat everywhere with him, and he's even given it a name, Olvelma Lou, which, what a, (laughs) is that name from the 20s? I don't know, but um, Cornette says when he gets one good unobstructed shot on CZW wrestlers, it won't be like you see on TV, some goof getting hit six times with a sledgehammer and getting back up, so a little shot WWE there. They will go down and stay down with one good shot. Current says he will be there in person in Chicago, WrestleMania weekend. And if CCW tries to interrupt, interrupt the most important events in Ring of Honor history, Cornette will have awards for the Ring of Honor wrestlers that hit the CCW wrestlers the hardest and make them fly the furthest. Cornette quotes Harper Lee and April Wine, and then he tells CCW he's going to hit them with his bat. 
So I mean, I think the obvious thing that stands out is the cognitive dissonance of him talking about the um the violent um you know mutilation of the CZW wrestlers immediately after one of the most violent matches we've seen in ROH in a long time, right? Like to me, like that stands out as being kind of ridiculous, but also like, you know, obviously it's a good promo. Like I I don't want to, you know, bury the lead. Like he's great at cutting promos and it's intense and like, it obviously worked. Um, but you know, looking at it now, it's just like, this guy was 44 years old and seemed so hell bent on seeming like he was 70 with his, like, you know, just his, like his references and just like his attitude. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's weird to like. I feel like Jim Credit's one of those guys. It just seems like he was fifty three for like the last thirty years, and you forget yeah. he was acting like a lot of his references and stuff seemed old, like you just said, when he was like not that much older than we are right now. He's only sixty now. Yeah, it's. I think people forget how young he re- he was. Like, like it's weird. Heyman, Heyman's another one, by the way, that always seemed a little bit older than he actually is. Yeah, because probably because they both got into wrestling so young, right? And yeah, well, yeah, of course, because they've been around forever, but they were so young when they started. Yeah, but I feel like it's weird. Like people forget how Cornette has basically been doing the "it was better back then" stuff. You could even think with like Smoky Mountain Wrestling, which was a throwback promotion when he was in his thirties, early thirties. Yeah, 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 like. Like, that's really, like, for people saying, like, Jim was right about, you know, you know, it was better back then. Like, he thought it was back then, quote unquote, at a far younger age than most people, like, get jaded and feel like things have passed them by. Yeah. And, like, so you get that. I mean, but, like, again, I don't want to overstate this. Like, he cuts really good promos. Yeah. Like, he's, like, he, he did a really good job of, like, seeming angry about this. Like, I, well, I you agree. Know, yeah, I mean, I just, I just, it's not my cup of tea in the sense of like calling them the hardcore boys and like all that stuff. Cause it's like, again, ROH does hardcore wrestling. They just did a really brutal hardcore, but, but like, it's like, that's just my personal stuff. This was good. <laughs> did you think it was a little weird? Like, it's one of those things that it sounds good when you're saying, but when you think about it, it doesn't sound as good. Like, when he's like, the first thing I did when I went home is I went to the Louisville Slugger factory and got a brand new bat fresh off the line. Like, for like for a second, my in- gut instinct was like, wow, that's bad. And then you think about it for like two seconds and go, like, couldn't you just have gone to a sports store and bought one? Like, did you really need to go to the factory and get a brand new one? Like- well, he was showing Louisville Louisville pride, you know? Like, it's like, <laughs> I, I got a fresh one right from the factory because I can do that. I'm, I'm a Louisville guy. Louisville, right? That's how you pronounce it. Louisville, yeah. not Louisville. Um, and a Louisville guy, and he, uh, you know, he probably knows the people at the factory, and they're like, "Oh, JC, he's in town with the, give him a fresh new bat." He could probably get a new bat there anytime he wants. I love, I love the idea that he's just on like initial terms with them, like, "Oh, JC, like you get a bat every two weeks." You know? Just you think it'd be much more on those terms with like the racket company, like. Jim, you'll love the new model we made. It's got more strings than ever. You're really going to love this one. Does Louisville, um, does Louisville Slugger make tennis rackets, though? That's the question. <laughs> um, so Louisville we- Server. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're coming back for intermission. 
And the uh, this match it did not make it to the DVD. It is Bobby Dempsey defeated Mitch Franklin in two minutes fifteen seconds, and apparently this match was not planned. So Dave Meltzer wrote in the Observer because Jack Evans was late in arriving from Japan. He was working for Dragon Gate, and his flight scheduled to arrive at seven p.m. ended up three hours late. They had to send Bobby Dempsey and Mitch Franklin out to fill time. So Matt, what I love about this story is this was a time filler match that went two minutes and fifteen. Seconds. <laughs> Like, like, how, how, how much? You literally could have just done nothing for that time. <laughs> exactly. Like, even adding entrances, like, what, you're getting three and a half minutes here, maybe? I mean, hey, you know what? Give them some ring time. Good for them. But uh, that brings us to the Ring of Honor World title match. Brian Danielson defeating Jimmy Ray, who was scored to the ring by Prince Nana, via ref stoppage in 32 minutes, five seconds after he hit crucifix elbows. Um... And apparently Jimmy Ravis said on the uh, An Honorable Mention podcast that this match actually went on a little bit earlier because, again, that um, the, I guess the Jack Evans-Ricky Reyes match was supposed to go on before them. But, again, they had to shuffle things around as they waited for Jack to uh, get to the building. But one thing I always really like in world title matches is when it feels like the match is really important to the challenger and it feels like they've kind of – they're raising their game up. And I felt like Jimmy Rave felt that way here. One of the biggest um, examples of that, I would say, yeah. Yeah, this performance from Ray feels like it's his, like, you can feel it feels like this is a big opportunity for him. He's really putting his best effort out there. Um, and I think that's his performance is aided immensely by Brian Danielson because it feels also here like Danielson is working really hard to make Rave look like a credible threat and giving him a lot. Like, um, he, it's funny, you know, we've seen a trend in Danielson's matches as champion ever since he kind of clicked on that character of like the like the best in the world kind of grumpy Brian Danielson, where he kind of almost eats up a lot of his opponents and dominates them. And I felt like in terms of that character, this has been as about as generous other than maybe Marafuji as he's been as that character. Like he gives rave quite a bit here and while he is still that character and still cocky and doing the i have till five and stuff like that he's not you know he, he gives rave a lot more than he's given roderick strong or, or or guys like that i would say in recent months um likewise there's not really any cowardly comedy from rave here he's he you know he's being a heel but he's not you know bowing out he's not he's not playing like he would in a tag match with alex shelley where he's doing a lot of begging off or things like that he is competitive with brian daniels and in fact a lot of the early mat wrestling in this match is like rave kind of shockingly getting out of things that danielson put him in and countering things and holding his own and even the announcers point out like wow like rave is really doing well here against brian danielson and then, um, you know, the match slowly builds, and we get into those final 10 minutes where the action really kicks in. And then Danielson, even there, lets Rave survive a lot. He um, does the flying headbutt, the belly-to-back superplex, the regalplex, the cow mutilation. Like, um, you know, he get, you know, Rave does – none of that stuff puts Rave away. Uh, Nana does hit Danielson once behind the ref's back. He does pull the ref out during one key near fall, which, again, is one of my pet peeves I hate when it's the least imaginative thing you can do where there's no reason the ref should not disqualify you because he knows for a fact what you did when you literally tug him out of the ring mid-count, but whatever. Um, otherwise, though, not other than those two spots, though, not really much in the way of cheating here. Um, 
in terms of pure entertainment, this match satisfies. I wouldn't say it's a high-end match of the year contender, but I would give this like four stars. I would say this is a great match. The pacing is really good. It goes a half an hour, but it never drags. And when it starts to kick in that high gear with the last 10 minutes to go, they pace out the last 10 minutes even where it doesn't feel like overkill or some dramatic shift. Like sometimes we watch these matches and I say to you, Matt, like, oh, this match was kind of slow and it feels like they flick a switch and go into ultra high gear. This match, it felt like it had like a good natural progression where it didn't feel like they just went from zero to 60. And, um, I guess one of the only criticisms I would have on this match is something that's kind of these guys were had a hard at like had working against them, which is you never really get the impression that the fans ever buy that Jimmy Wraith can beat Brian Danielson. There are maybe two near falls in this match where it feels like some of the fans buy a little bit into it. One of them is after Wraith hits one of the best running knees I've ever seen him hit. You do feels like a few fans maybe buy into it, but just the way these two have been booked and stuff, there isn't a lot of tension in those near falls, but overall I would say this is, is like a low, like great match. It's another great Danielson match, a really good individual performance of Jimmy Rave. And I know Jimmy Rave has said that he feels like this is one of his favorite matches he's ever had in terms of singles matches. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, I would say on the list of most important matches, singles matches Rave has had in ROH, this, you know, maybe the second or the third, you know, you know, probably behind the punk cage match, you know, probably ahead of the other punk matches, you know, maybe that dog collar match in Manhattan is up there, but like, otherwise this has got to be like Ray's biggest match. And yeah, he really does rise to the occasion. Um, like you said, Danielson was his, like his cocky heel character, but I would have to say he barely was like, I think he toned down that character a lot for this match. Like he really doesn't do a lot. He doesn't do any taunting of the crowd at all. He doesn't ask the ring announcer to like do a modifier on his introduction. You know, like he he's he really tones it down. He's he's a lot closer to two thousand and four Brian Danielson than he has been in his other matches. Um not completely, you know, he's kind of in the middle. But he lets Rave shine here. Is yeah. is and like Rave does. Like he 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 rides to it. I would actually say if I was gonna pick like who is the MVP of this match, you know, I mean Danielson is always just the like the best, but like I think it's Rave. You know, Rave is the one that really had to step it up to be different, and he did. Um and, you know, I, I, I thought, like you said, it's a, it's a great match. Not a high-end match of the year contender, yes, but I, I do think I like the match more than you. I think this match is a little better than four stars. Um, it's a memorably good match. And, um, you know, like I said, it is long. The pacing is, is good. Um, you know, when, when, uh, when a Rave does a lot of the stuff where he steals other guys' moves, like he does the cattle mutilation and he does a camel clutch and like his cattle mutilation wasn't bad. He also does a Danielson style top rope superplex. Which was pretty good. Um, Danielson, just to show that he is the baby face in this match for a change, he actually does top rope corner punches, which you don't <laughs> see very often. And like, well, like you, I, I don't like the pulling the referee out of the ring thing, but I will say this. It d- did set up a fun spot because immediately after he pulls the referee out of the ring, Danielson does a tope onto Nana and wipes him out. And I thought that was a, that was a good spot that got yeah. the crowd going. Um, the, the thing about, you know, rave, you know, not, them not buying, Rave winning, you know, it's kind of like you said, it would have been nearly impossible to get fans to believe that Danielson was going to lose the title here. The only thing that I feel like would have like maybe done it is if they really went heavy on the interference at the end, you know, like the belt shot kick out always works, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but they they didn't do that. They, they, They wanted to go for a more classic wrestling match. And so this is the best they could have done, I think. 
and they did a pretty good job. Like they, like Danielson really built up Rave here. And the other thing that I noticed about this match is in a lot of Danielson's other matches, they don't really do the, you know, the what we've seen so far, I mean, they don't really do the, the real like, like protracted, like extended finishing sequence where there's a lot of big false finishes and dramatic stuff. And I do think that they, this one had the kind of the best, like longest finishing sequence of any Danielson title match yet. Like you know, the first 20 minutes were slow and building and the last 10 minutes were really exciting. Like the whole way through, you know, it was long and it worked. It didn't feel too long. And I, so I, I feel like it's almost like a template for Danielson matches that will, will, will be coming in the next, you know, the rest of his title reign, I should say. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting match and I think, yeah, I do think it was a great match. Um, um, one of, one of the highlights to me of Danielson's title reign, honestly, especially at this point, it's probably my second favorite Danielson title match after the second Roderick Strong match, I would say. I really liked it that much. Um, you know, I'd say maybe on par to me with the first Roderick Strong match, the mm-hmm. one that you liked better, but like, I'd say well above the, any of his other title defenses. Uh, one thing I want to mention too, because we both commented about we didn't like the uh, the Nana interference, is I do want to point out, even though I didn't like that that one interference spot, like you said, it did have the big path with Danielson taking him out, taking him out with a dive, but also I do think Nana was really good in this match. Like I felt he was really good at showing the emotion without being overbearing. Like like you know he does the thing even late in the match where he like he takes off his jacket because he's getting so heated. Like like Nana to me even felt like he was doing like a world title performance where he was really selling how important this match was. You know to him that Wraith could win the world title for him here. And uh, and, other notes. Before you mention this, so. I, I, I agree with you. This isn't like a match of the year candidate, like overall, but for ROH matches that we've watched so far from 2006, this might be my, the best match of the year so far. To me, it's either this or the Seidel Styles match. Um, but just, I felt like worth noting this, you know, this is what five, the fifth show of the year. And I, I feel like this has had a good case for being the best ROH match so far. No, I, I agree. This does have a good case for that. Um, another thing is, um, we didn't mention Rave bleeds out of his mouth. Really, I mean, I don't know if it, it just looks worse because it's mixed with saliva. But there's one point in this match where he just spits this long, big, thick string of of red liquid out. Like he gets busted. I don't know what busted him open, but he gets busted open pr- pretty good in the mouth. Um, yeah, uh, just. Very enjoyable match. So after the match, Rave sells being out cold in the ring. He's completely motionless for Danielson's entire celebration. Uh, Nana gets in the ring to yell at the ring announcer that the belt was supposed to come to him tonight. But then Danielson scares Nana out of the ring. Brian shakes an unconscious Jimmy Rave's hand. And uh, we cut to m- moments later when Daniel, we, we get like a camera cut to clearly some times past Danielson's gone. Nana's back in the ring and he's helping Ray. Ray's face is smeared with his own blood and they just help into the back. And I thought like, even stuff like that, I like that they spent a little bit of extra time just to show like how badly destroyed Ray was from this and how pissed off Nana was. But um, 
Next, we get another extended video package of highlights from the rest of Ring of Honor's fourth year. So I said that first package ended in August. This goes all the way to, I believe, the last highlight is CM Punk from the very last previous show, uh, Unscripted 2. So really covering literally everything in the fourth year. And then um, that brings us to Ricky Reyes with Julia Smokes defeating Jack Evans via submission in 7 minutes, 57 seconds, when he made Evans tap out to the Dragon Sleeper. Uh, Matt, I posted a clip of a botch that, not even a botch, I would say it's a missed catch by Ricky Reyes for Jack Evans, and I was shocked. That thing, I think, got, like, tens of thousands of views, like, it got crazy, like, but it's crazy because no one remember. I don't think many people remember that, and yet, Um, like, you watch and go, holy shit, like, it's one of those, I can't believe he survived spots. But, I mean, this whole thing, I mean, before I get to you, I guess the story of this match is, we touched on it a little bit. Jack Evans, the, the announcers even talk about Jack Evans was supposed to uh, get here in time from Dragon Gate. He had, like, a 14-hour flight. They said the flight was three hours delayed. So they, they say on the commentary, I don't know if this is true, but I have no reason to doubt it, that he basically got there 10 minutes before match time, didn't have any time to warm up. Uh, it looks like Jack Evans, like one of his boots might not even be laced up because there's like long laces dangling from it. And he, you, you can tell in his performance that he is not all there in terms of just being prepared. You know, he, he's wrestling like a guy who just got to the building. It's actually amazing that some of the spots that he hit well, he was actually able to hit because he does hit a few of his like, you know, crazy spots. Okay. You know, like, um, but he does a few botches too, obviously. It's it's interesting because like you know, like you mentioned the the boot thing. It's like if he had gone out there and been like, Hey, I just got here, everybody, give me a second to lace up my boots and he just did it in front of everybody, they probably would have been okay with it. Like the crowd probably would have like cheered him on as he was lacing his boots. Um but um yeah, I mean that this match is memorable for that one spot. Um but they do have a match before that. You know, like um they um they start hot and heavy ish. Um, Evans does and connects and executes well a springboard four fifty onto the floor onto Reyes and smokes. And at one point Leonard Leonard even says Evans is showing no signs of jet lag, which I'm just like, why even say that? Like it's like <laughs> that just makes it worse later because like a, a minute later smokes is on the outside telling Reyes he's got jet lag, he's got jet lag, Ricky, take care of him and. <laughs> Leonard said he had no jet lag. Who will be right? I think, I think we know the answer. Um, but you know, Ray, uh, Reyes does some very blunt crowd work here because he goes, come on, like the crowd's chanting, let's go Jack. And he goes, come on, let's go Jack, you stupid fucks, which I'm just, <laughs> you could not, not a lot of subtlety to that, to that healing on the crowd. Um, at one point, um, Smokes refers to Evans as a Malibu rapper, which, I assume is referencing the classic movie Malibu's Most Wanted, <laughs> which I um, uh, what year did that movie come out? Two thousand and three. So we're just a few years past that movie, but cl- clearly that's what he was referencing because th- one thing about Jack Evans, he is not from Malibu. But <laughs> the only wrestling podcast this year you will listen to that has referenced John Lovitz, Richard Kind, and Jamie Kennedy in the same episode. Yes, although I will probably have edited out the John Lovitz reference, but just God know, <laughs> just know that it was in there. Um, but um, yeah, he uh, so yeah, so um, Evans does hit a Rana at one point, 
And then he hits a handspring, not perfectly, but okay enough, and he hits a well-executed springboard to the back of Reyes' head. But one of the first big note signs that Evans is not what he should be is he's trying to do this thing where he runs up the turnbuckle and like jumps into a Rana in a but he really botches it fairly dramatically. And finally we get Leonard acknowledging, yes indeed, Jack Evans has jet lag. And um you know, again, Evans does a few more okay things, but then when Reyes gets to the outside, Evans goes for a double moonsault, which okay, so listen. If this was extreme circumstances, Evans was probably not in a position where he should have been wrestling. At the same time, probably should not have tried the double moonsault. Because if he had gone for just a single acai moonsault, he would have hit it. Because he did flip over once. Um, but I don't want to victim blame. Like, it was very scary. Like, he he landed hard on the back of his head on the floor. Like, really, like, Reyes got an arm out, but, like, he really didn't catch him. And, and it was a non-padded floor. Yeah, a non-padded floor. He just splatted on the mat. Like, it really is sort of like the thing where it's like he could have easily been dead. Like, like that's how that's how scary it was. And Evans is somehow moving. Um, Smokes taunts the crowd. But, like, what happens after is, honestly, from a 2006, um, 2022 standpoint, pretty shocking that Reyes throws Jack back into the ring and hits a triple powerbomb after what the guy just – what just happened to the guy? Like, it seems like almost like cruel. And obviously Evans kicks out. Like I, I obviously it doesn't sound like he was upset about it. Right. I, I you know, at the mm-hmm. time, maybe that's just what you did. Um, and the crowd was very behind Jack. And, but like, I do want to mention this cause I was live for this. Many people in many sections of the crowd had no idea about how bad that fall was. Like you could not see that from most of the building. You know, you know, like he didn't land right, but no, like, like I had no idea that he landed the way he did. So I wasn't like sitting there being like, oh my God, like, you know, like watching it on video. Yes, I was. But from where I was sitting, like, I couldn't tell how he landed. You know, I know he didn't land the way he should have, but to me, it's like that there's a difference between like a botched move and like, oh my God, that guy should be dead. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's really good. You mentioned that, Matt, because one of the many comments I got when I posted that clip was someone, obviously you got the usual horrible trolls that then immediately tagged Jim Cornette. We're like, Jim, you got to see this Mark doing this spot, which is funny because they did not even realize that Jim Cornette was the commissioner of Ring of Honor while he was doing this. But anyway, um, there was one fan, one person that said something like, I bet those fans just chanted you fucked up or like laughed at. It's like one, no, they didn't. And two, like, as you mentioned, like, on spots like that, a lot of times, a lot of the crowd does not even see the extent of what happened. Like, yeah. it's kind of unfair to, like, psychoanalyze crowds based on stuff like that. Yeah, but, like, but yeah, but the crowd wasn't being, like, disrespectful. Like, they no, just retreated. No. I mean, they, they were reacting to the match because they yeah. continued having a match, you know? And, like, so Evans kicked out of the triple power, triple power bomb, and the crowd did get behind him, although, like, he was really a mess at this point. His pants were falling down, like, and Smokes yelled, kill the Malibu rapper! And I'm just thinking, like, he basically did already. But, like, Evans actually hits a fisherman's buster, and he goes back up for the 630, but Reyes crotches him and hits an Orton-style DDT, with, like a draping DDT off the top rope, and turns it into the choke, and Evans taps. Um, and, like, based on what happened in the match, obviously, it makes sense that Reyes would win. Um, although I'm not really sure like what the booking direction was because obviously Reyes wasn't going to get the push that Evans would get. But like, yeah, that match was dramatic and scary and like obviously not good because of how Evans Evans' condition. And I'm glad that it didn't end up being worse than it was. But yikes! Yeah. Um, 
I thought this match was entertaining, but also incredibly uncomfortable to watch because, yeah, it was one of those matches where watching it, knowing the story of Jack Evans just barely having any time to get there and all that stuff, like, he should not have been wrestling on this night. Like, they should have just told him when he got there that late, like, Jack, like, maybe you can take the night off. The world did not need Jack Evans versus Ricky Reyes. But, um, you know, it was entertaining, like, Ray, this was a more competitive match than Reyes has been having lately. And whenever Jack is on offense, he's trying to do something crazy. And whenever he's not on offense, he's taking like a big bump like Jack Evans does, like on a, like a Saito suplex. But yeah, like you mentioned one of the key botches. Another one was just he does that handspring elbow into the corner where like the elbow is supposed to take him the momentum of over the top rope onto the apron and he can't get over the top rope. And it's just it's moments like that where you can just tell he's not – you know, he's not clicking tonight because he just got to the building and he's not even laced up his boots. And, um, yeah, that die, for those like who haven't seen it, it is, again, it's on my Twitter now, buried under eight miles of his man tweets, but like it is a frightening, frightening spot where, like Matt said, I think Matt, you said it perfectly, where like, it would have not, not to be morbid, but if someone to show you that clip and then told you without context, that guy died from that or got paralyzed from that, you would believe it. You would go, yeah, that makes sense. Like the fact that he is up within 60 seconds taking a triple power bomb. Like again, that's part of that made me feel uncomfortable. Like they should have just finished the match there. They should have right. ref stoppage or something. And. This, I mean, this will happen again, like with the Jimmy Jacobs, uh, BJ Whitmer match on a few shows from now, but like. Yeah, I think even that maybe not quite as scary as this, as horrible as that was, too. And Jack Evans is one of those guys, it's just, I am amazed he is still wrestling to this day. Like, he's in his 40s now, I think. And he's, like, he is one of those guys where I am shocked he has held, I mean, obviously, there's you could watch him now, there's miles on his body, he's not what he once was physically, but like, I remember 10, 15, I mean, God, he's one of those guys that probably in the first few years of his career, people were writing in newsletters and stuff like, oh, Jack Evans won't be around for much longer. And not only is he still wrestling, he's like, he doesn't seem like he's physically all that bad off. Like he's, yeah. you know, not, not like he's, I mean, not, you know, not like I'm sure he's, you know, 40 and like, you know, beat up, but like, he doesn't seem like so much more beat up than like most 40 year old veteran wrestlers. It's crazy. And I always remember this one story. Um, I figured it was a PWG triple shot or a double shot, but there was three matches for him on it. I, I don't, either way, I remember it was him and Angelico on this night and Jack Evans takes this bump over the top rope and just takes a huge bump without touching the ropes, lands like bumps on the, on the hard floor. And I thought that's the kind of bump that'd be insane for anyone to ever take. And I thought, I can't believe he did that. I think Jack ended up doing that every time he wrestled that weekend. Like he took that, he found an excuse to take that bump every single match. And it's just something like that. You you watch that guy and you think, I get why people say, oh, he's not going to last. But yet he did. You know, it, it is crazy that he did, but he did. Um, the Observer wrote, Reyes beat Jack Evans with a dragon sleeper. Jack uh, Evans was rushed to the building and wasn't even wearing his gear and seemed a little off as he hadn't even had time to warm up. Crowd seemed to understand. Sloppy with one botched spot and two crazy dives, one which was said to be really scary. Yes, Dave, very much so. And then um, 
this I thought this was interesting. Wade Keller, when he reviewed the DVD, you know, Wade Keller, maybe not watching as much wrestling around the world or indies as Dave Meltzer or a lot of the most hardcore fans, but Wade Keller has seen a lot of wrestling, even by 2006. And so I think this says something. Wade Keller wrote, upon watching this match, quote, the Jack Evans backflip crash and burn on the floor was among the five scariest bumps I've ever seen. And, like, yeah, it is one of the, I, I don't think that's crazy to say. Like, even for me, it's one of the scarier, that's definitely one of the scarier bumps I've ever seen someone walk away from, I would say. Yeah, or get up immediately, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, not, I, I mean, you've seen scary bumps, but bumps where they didn't finish the match. This, the guy, yeah, the guy is doing spots in a minute later. But that brings us to the main event, Ring of Honor World Tag Team Title Match. Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeated AJ Styles and Matt Seidel in 23-11 when Aries pinned Seidel after hitting a 450. Uh, I'd be interested if um, in knowing if this was the original planned main event because on the, an honorable mention episode with Jimmy Rave, he mentioned – that they had to go on, he and Danielson, he said, quote, way earlier than we had planned, which there were only two matches left on the show. So part of me goes, it can't have been that much earlier, but maybe part of me wonders if that was the main event, but because they knew Danielson and Rafe could go long, they put that on then I, before. Oh, on. I have a memory, and I can't guarantee this is true, but I have a memory that they announced this was the main event like before the show, like they, on the website, they said like the tag titles would be the main event of this, of this show. That's interesting. That makes sense. Cause they were trying to put more focus on the tag belts and this is a pretty big match, but um, yeah, it is interesting. Cause Rafe said in the interview, like, Oh, you know, we only had time to work out one or two spots cause they went up way earlier. But yeah, if you think about it, they only then went up probably one match before they were originally planned. But anyway, I would say this is like, another like low great four star flat match but obviously completely different than the uh rave uh Danielson match obviously this is i i would call this match like the work rate version of big dumb jock wrestling where sometimes people talk about like old steiner matches and stuff is like big dumb jock wrestling but like in a in an affectionate way where it's just like guys chucking around other guys and i would call like the work rate version of big dumb jock wrestling almost like prime Davy Richards or stuff where it's just guys that work really hard doing move after move and, and just really the execution is really good. And I would say there's not much story here. Yes. Strong kind of taunts Matt Seidel once or twice. And yes, there is the basic classic tag team match structure of two face and peril hot tag sequences, but this is really just about four really good workers doing a ton of action, doing a lot of moves and also stiffing the shit out of each other. I think that's the thing that makes this a little bit special where the bar for these kinds of just all action tag matches, I feel like has been raised so much, you know, in modern days, like you see a tag match, I would say like this good frequently, especially in like a place like AEW. Yeah. This, this feels slow by modern standards. Yeah. But what I would say this match has that those matches doesn't is there's an element of stiffness here that isn't in a lot of those, like particularly Roderick, and AJ really go stiff each other quite a bit. I don't know what was in Roddy's Wheaties on this day, but he was really laying it in. At one point, he caught AJ high with a kick right in the face. Their exchanges are enough are, are stiff enough that it, like you can hear Dave Prezak like legit popping on a commentary at one point, like whoa. Um, and 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 having that kind of mixed in with the high spots, I think kind of makes a match feel like more like a battle than just a collection of moves when you have like nice high spot. 
but then two guys just throwing a couple of stiff forearms. And I like how we kind of got broken up like that. Like you kind of just alluded to, this match doesn't really have a breakneck pace until maybe the final few minutes, but the whole match is kind of this mid-tempo that's in, a, in a satisfying way. You know, you get your dive train, you get Aries catching someone right in the head with a flying top rope drop kick, which was really neat. Probably not great for the rest of that took it. You get one of the best sick kicks from Roderick Strong ever, the, that running single leg big boot he does, where Styles has um Aries for the Styles Clash, and while he's holding Aries like upside down, basically Strong just hits that kick right between Aries' legs, right in Styles' face. It looks so great. And sounds great. They do the the one of the better thigh slaps we've we've heard. <laughs> yeah, and one of the better. Um, it's a great way to take AJ. That takes him out of the match. One of a great way to take him out of the match. Um, AJ does a quick delayed vertical suplex on pra- uh, vertical suplex, and Prezak even says, "Carry on through the tradition at the fourth anniversary show of the delayed vertical suplex." And then later, Roderick does one to AJ. So again, probably five or six delayed vertical suplexes on the night. Um, yeah, so overall, I would just say, um, you know, again, like you said, this match in some ways has kind of aged, you know, it, it, in terms of pace. But I still think it's a really good kind of action tag main event. Yeah, I would call this a really good action tag main event. I think one of our bigger disagreements of the night, though, is that you have this match and the Danielson-Rave match on the same level, and I definitely don't think they're on the same level. I think that the uh, the Danielson-Rave match was a lot more memorable and and just like an overall better match. I mean, this, like you said, was it just had less of a story, less nuance to it. I mean, it still did have a story in that, like, you know, at the beginning, you know, maybe Aries and Strong weren't taking Seidel quite as seriously because he was kind of like the junior member of the team. And Seidel was trying to show them that he was up to their level. And, you know, they, they showed AJ a bit more reverence because obviously he's much more established. And, you know, and Seidel was sort of like the one who had to prove himself because he was the least stiff member of the match. He was certainly the least bulky guy in the match. So he was relying more on the flying. So I, um, you know, and there were some good hot tags. There was also a not great hot tag to Aries, but, you know, he was energetic and he was able to uh, start the whole, um, the, the dive train segment. I, I, I do think that the, uh, the final sequence of this match, I'd say like the last like four minutes or so is one of the better like action sequences at the end of a tag match we've seen in ROH so far like the big moves all just came off really well and these guys are all so athletic and you know I think you know Strong was really starting to show just I I mean like I think Strong was the best guy in this match and you know he's in the ring with AJ Styles and Austin Aries who are considered you know two of the better wrestlers of their era so I think it really you know Strong continues to show like what an elite level he was getting to at this point Um, and I also think Seidel showed uh, showed how good he was. Because, you know, when you mention like, this is like the dumb jock match, I feel like Seidel comes off the least like a dumb jock yeah. of any of these guys. Um, and I, and I, I thought like his energy helped the match a little bit. But yeah, like it's, there was a lot of just really good action. And I think for a, such a long match, that's kind of a good thing to have in a, in a tag team main event. Um, the, uh, you know, the other really good tag title defense that Aries and Strong had was against Danielson and Lethal. And I think, I think I like this one better, but it was, cl- I know you like the other one probably a little bit better. Um, but I think it's close. And already these two guys are 
elevating the tag titles a lot. Like mm-hmm. these feel like worthy main events. Um, this is the second tag title main event that they've had, and you know it feels like they could de- like definitely the, the titles feel like they're on that level. And you know clearly with the Briscoes angle, they're uh, they're doing a lot of work to ensure that they stay that way. But yeah, I, I thought this was three and three quarters maybe if I would put it on a level maybe up to four. Um, but I, I do think this was not on the level of the world title match. Just that match felt a little more special to me. No, I, I completely can see that. Cause also like they, these are very different stylistic matches, right? Like completely different kind of matches. Um, one thing you were talking about, I agree about all the, about the tag team division, like really starting to come into its own or at least the tag champs, obviously the division's still not necessarily deep, although we're getting the Briscoes back. But one thing I was just thinking about is, in a weird way for the division, maybe not for the two guys' careers, but like the strong Aries, like falling out with TNA couldn't have happened at a better time because it almost like gave them, I imagine more momentum with the ring of honor fans. Like apparently I don't think this made DVD, but I read something, some live report that like there was fuck TNA chance, you know, before this match started. And there's a point in this match where there are dueling air Austin Aries and AJ Styles chants. And the Aries chants are noticeably louder than the AJ Styles ones. And part of me was wondering, I wonder if that is just kind of a reaction to the crowd is really super appreciative of uh, Aries strongest. They know now this is the news is Biden. Of course, now it filtered out from the last show about like kind of what they sacrificed to, make sure they did that ring of honor show. So I imagine in a sense that probably gives them a lot of momentum as champions. Yeah. I feel like that's part of it. You know, Aries was seen as a guy who was more loyal to ROH styles was seen as a guy that was more associated with TNA. And yeah, I'm sure the ROH crowd appreciated that. Yeah. So after the match, we get more confetti. It comes down. The two teams are about to shake hands when the Briscoes run in an attack, they hit Roderick strong with a spike J driller before Aries chases them off Jay says they're getting their belts back. Aries tells them to go back to the chicken farm, motherfuckers. Aries, Styles, and Strong check on Roddy, or I guess Strong doesn't check on Roddy, but uh, the crowd chants Ring of Honor, and an on-screen graphic says, thank you for four unforgettable years. Uh, next, we get a shot of a dingy building in Philadelphia. I think it's the Murphy Rec Center. I've obviously never been there. Um, the camera pans over, and we see Christopher sta- Christopher Daniels standing by. We quickly fade out to a graphic that says "To be continued." I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was the Murphy Rec, because if I recall correctly, we'll we'll see. There might be like a thing where he like goes from the Murphy Rec to the ECW arena at the beginning of the next show. And we do know, obviously, the next show is in Philly, so they would have the ability to shoot him going to the Murphy Rec. Oh, yeah, and, and also, by the way, one other thing I forgot to mention in the uh, tag title match that I thought was funny. Gabe does one more cameo on commentary talking about how he's at the party. Like, you know, everyone's celebrating how they beat up CZW and they're all drinking in the back. And I have to say, Gabe does a pretty good acting job of b- being drunk. Like, his, he's, he's trying to sound like his speech is slurred and stuff and, like, Praise X, like, oh, you're drunk, you're too drunk. And it's like, hey, you know what? It was like not bad. It wasn't over the top. Like, he just sounded a little bit drunk. And I, I doubt that he actually was. So, like, good good job. Good acting, Gabe. Good comedic acting. Didn't he also smoke in, like, oh, he always does this, too. Like, he'll do the drunk, but then he'll go, like, smoking a little, too. Like, like, well, he was, like, yeah, I think there was something, like, I think that's not the only thing that you smelled or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> 
god. Um, so yeah, that was the show, and I don't think this is controversial. I think this is widely pretty well considered. Like, this is the best show I think we've seen in quite some time. I I think there are two great matches. I would say the tag and the Danielson match, and I would say the uh, the the Colt Homicide match. I, I can see that not being everyone's jam because it does go on. It's for a long time and it is more of a story match, but I do really like the story they were telling. Um, the, the ROH CZW angle, I think was, was really one of the things that put the show over the top too. Yeah. I was going to say you get the three close to great or great matches. Then on top of that, you get like the CZW angle, which is really memorable and cool. And then the Briscoes return feels noteworthy. You got a couple rushers that are like on their way out of the company. Like this just felt like an important show where a lot of things happen, plus you had the great wrestling. And again, it goes back to this conversation we had at the start of the show. It just watching the show on this night, it really felt like this is the first show of this streak of shows where it really felt like, oh, this company is reaching a new level of momentum. Like they're heating up. A lot of things are clicking for them right now. And just even obviously now we have the benefit revisiting these shows we know what's coming next. We know they got some big things in the chamber too. So it's easy for me to say it's heating up when I know what's coming next, but it just, I think even at the time you could tell, you know, this product is getting that momentum again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And of course there's going to be setbacks and stuff and shows that don't work as well, but yeah, this, and the, the show had a hot crowd. It had hot matches. It had good work and good angles. And, you know, obviously that one really scary part with, Jack Evans, but overall, this yeah, this felt like a promotion that was ascendant, and you know that's always a lot of fun, and you get the good wrestling on top of it. Uh, this is definitely yeah, definitely the best show of 2006 so far. And I'm trying to think of like when like when the last show that was as good as this. I guess maybe Final Battle, um, but you know they they definitely are building a hot streak in this building and uh, in Edison. Yeah, I, I always feel like a lot of times we go, oh, this is a great show because there's some great matches, or this is a great show because it just felt really important. Like, this is one of those shows where you can really tell Ring of Honor's show is special when, like, you don't have to choose. Like, it's all there. Yes. Both elements. And there's and definitely going to be more of that, especially when we get to chi- the Chicago shows, which are not too far away now. Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the show. If you want to get in contact with us, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H. If it's through on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs form, Twitter, at Trevor Dame, or at Mayor MGF. Um, next time on the show, the Milestone Series, Matt, just started. It will continue with Arena Warfare. Ring of Honor comes to the ECW Arena. We're going to have Danielson versus uh, Al Shelley, and we're going to have another gigantic CZW Ring of Honor con- confrontation. And we're going to have another major wrestler showing up late to the show, basically making it on the show by the skin of their teeth. Hopefully it goes better than it did for Jack Evans. So it, we're in a really exciting time for Ring of Honor right now. And, uh, yeah, it, it, this is just really fun to be, <laughs> to be. It's one of those moments where it's like I've been thinking about this era for a long time of doing the podcast. It's cool that we're in it. And it's crazy that we're talking as, like, Ring of Honor's on the eve of, kind of a pay-per-view that quite a few people are excited about. I know uh, Tony Khan has said that he thinks from just the early like pre-sale buys, it's going to be one of the most purchased pay-per-views in Ring of Honor history. So, Matt, Ring of Honor is back. 
It is. It's back. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm very curious to compare the two Jay Lethal versus Samoa Joe matches. Yeah, me too. Me too. We might be like one of seven, two of seven, but yeah. maybe a few of the people that listen to the show, you will also be interested. I mean, compare and contrast. So until that, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.